power on. The following is a presentation of the Sovereign Technica podcast feed. Well, this week, the nation watched as whistleblowers and former military members stepped forward with what they claim is a government cover-up of UFOs and non-human life forms during a historic congressional hearing. But now, a top Pentagon official calling those testimonies insulting. News Nation's Evan Moon live for us on Capitol Hill with those new details. Evan. That's right, Natasha. Just a few days ago, right here in this building, Congress held a first-of-its-kind hearing on UFOs, non-human life, and what some believe to be a potential government cover-up. Now, a top Pentagon official is calling these claims insulting to employees who are investigating these sightings and accused one key witness of not cooperating with the government U.S. investigation. Pentagon official uh, Sean Kirkpatrick claimed that whistleblower... uh, and retired intelligence officer David Grosh, whose groundbreaking claims were first reported on a News Nation exclusive interview, should be taken seriously, and that certain claims made in Wednesday's hearing were not credible. During his testimony, Grosh made some astonishing accusations, saying the U.S. government had biologics of non-human life form, and that those who came forward with any information had been hurt. Do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, absolutely based on interviewing uh, over 40 witnesses over four years. Do you have any personal knowledge of people who have been harmed or injured in efforts to cover up or conceal these extraterrestrial technology? Yes. Personally. Have you heard, have anyone been murdered that you would think, that you know of or have heard of, I guess? I have to be careful asking that question. I directed people with that knowledge to the appropriate authorities. Biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge. Now, congressmen leading these investigations into these accusations say they will continue to press the Pentagon for answers and potentially hold hearings or field hearings to get any evidence of these claims. Natasha. Okay, Evan Moon on Capitol Hill with that report. Thank you. This episode of Sovereign Tech X was originally recorded on August 4, 2023. It is time for Sovereign Tech X. And that means, well, at least in most cases, that I am not alone. I am being joined by none other than my miraculous wife. And you are a miracle. <laughs> Mrs. Ellen Sovereign is here. Welcome back to some Sovereign Tech on the Sovereign Technica podcast feed. Whiter than Miracle Whip, here I am. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> well, no, it's not, but I imagine I sound like a white person. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes at night you might be... All right, uh, never mind. So... <laughs> I'm like a ghost. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were, you were putting on a new new mask earlier. Oh, yeah. That, that, that looked quite white. Well, see, as a human being, I I wear many faces throughout Mm -hmm. the day, and some of them you can see, and some of them you can't. Okay. The 12 12 faces of Kabbalah. Um, All right. So, (laughs) yeah. So, but you're not. You're, 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 you know, you're a Native American princess, quite literally. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I no, mean, it's the truth. Yeah, th- there is part of my heritage that is, I think, Slovakian, but the other half, yes, is Native American. Yeah, and I tend to identify more 
with that part of right. myself from a philosophical basis, from a... I, I don't know. Even I, cultural, I, where you grew yeah, up. I, I mean, just feel like my outlook fits more with that line of histor- historical... Right. Um, I don't know. Like, the, the people, the Native American people, their cultural practices and their belief system... Uh, it's something that I feel very attuned to in a way that I'm not to Western civilization. Yeah, right on, right on. I, I like that. I think that's part of one of the big things we have in common is we're not very attuned to Western civilization. Yes, that is true. <laughs> we are quite... In fact, you famously, uh, years ago, on, on your own podcast, which, boy... People can find that out there, and they should. They should go out and find it. But on the Illumination Hour, you did an episode where I thought you you carved Western civilization up oh, like you. you were holding a katana. I mean, you, you <laughs> tore that baby up. It was that was amazing. I mean, I've been you know trying to do it for years, but you did it in like one hour. Oh, it's not hard to poke holes in Western civilization. It's sure. just that it's something that people want to hang on to for better or worse. Well, they don't even know what it means. I mean that that. In my opinion, like I don't think people really know what Western civilization even means. But yeah, well, maybe we don't. I mean, where did it start? Did it start with the Pilgrims? Did it start with the Romans? Start with the Greeks. Yeah, that's usually what people will point at. Yeah. We constantly hear about Western involvement, Western values, and Western interests in the media. People say that the West is the best, or the West is in decline. Some country is either Westernizing or hates the West way of life. The West is the countries with democracies and free markets, right? Or the countries that are part of Western civilization? Then what about Latin America? Are they Western? What does the West even mean? And what exactly is Western civilization? Let's find out. To understand what Western civilization is, we'll have to look at its 5,000 year history, which I'm going to try and summarize in a few hundred words. I'll start with the Greeks, who are considered the traditional founders of Western civilization and the people that gave the West a lot of its central values, such as citizen participation in government, the disciplines of science, philosophy and history, and the basis of Western architecture. The Greeks, or at least each Greek city-state, had an identity based on some of these ideas, except Sparta, whose identity was based on death and sweet abs. People such as Homer, Socrates and Hippocrates are all titans in the fields of Western literature, philosophy and medicine. They essentially kickstarted it. Now don't get me wrong, an ancient Greek would be considered alien if we ever met one today, but the idea that Western civilization descends from the Greeks is just as important an idea to the West as an actual direct link. Obviously, modern Western civilization isn't the same as ancient Greek culture. Later, Westerners chose what they wanted to adopt and what they wanted to abandon. No one in the modern West is sacrificing goats to the gods and taking slaves just because the Greeks did it. The origins of the East-West division has roots in ancient Greece, specifically in the Persian Wars. It is in this conflict that we see the beginning of the liberty-loving masculine West versus the despotic, decadent and feminine East trope, a trope that we still see on screen today. One of the most important things that Greece did for the West was influence Rome. Rome gave the West the foundations for its governments, its languages and its laws. The Roman law code was the basis for the legal systems of most of Europe and its colonies up until the 18th and 19th centuries. Rome provided the West with an identity firstly through its empire and then through its church. Christianity held the West together after Rome faded and would mould its identity up until the 19th century. Christianity became the religion of Rome shortly after the Emperor Constantine had adopted it. But just as important in the history of the West is something else that Constantine did, and that was establishing the city of Constantinople. You see, the Roman Empire had a cultural divide. The West spoke Latin 
and the East spoke Greek. So, the Romans began thinking with a Latin versus Greeks mindset. The Latins saw the Greeks as more effeminate and decadent compared to how manly and tough they were, which added to the whole East versus West idea. Which is funny because the Greeks taught the exact same in relation to themselves to the Persians. The Roman Empire eventually divided along these lines. The western half faded away in the 5th century and the eastern Byzantine half lasted another 1000 years. In 1054, the western and eastern churches split from each other in an event known as the Great Schism. I'm not going to go into detail about the Great Schism because it deserves to be a video in itself, but the important takeaway is that after 1054, the Catholic Church separated from the Eastern Orthodox Church. A Pope sat in Rome and a Patriarch sat in Constantinople. The Eastern Roman Empire would eventually spread Orthodox Christianity into the Levant, the Balkans, and importantly, they converted the Rus. This schism, in combination with the Islamic conquest that began three centuries previously, gave the West its own identity. They were now West Christendom. They may not have liked each other, but they knew they hated the Eastern heathens and Muslims even more. Constantinople would fall to the Ottomans in 1453, and afterwards the Greek, Roman and Islamic knowledge that they had accumulated and preserved was brought back to Europe by scholars and merchants. The Renaissance, with all its fancy naked statues, got into full swing. The West began to re-import Western civilization, with all the additions the Byzantines, Muslims and others had made to it. This rebirth of Western culture came along just before the discovery of the New World. So the Europeans, now confident that their ideas and culture were superior, began to colonize the New World. This is the beginning of the spread of the West, and also the reason why the West is such a hard term to quantify today. By colonizing and imposing their culture on other nations, the West ended up in the northern, southern and eastern parts of the world, which is confusing for a group that identifies as a position on the compass. During the Enlightenment, the Western idea of a nation-state developed. During this era, European imperialism was brought to Africa and Asia, and as Westerners translated Eastern languages and interacted with the East more, a kind of Orientalism began depicting the East as an irrational, psychologically weak and feminized other, which was negatively contrasted with the West's idea of itself as rational, psychologically strong and masculine. This nation-state concept was imposed on places where it didn't really belong, resulting in odd, perfectly straight borders. The Enlightenment dulled the idea of West Christendom and birthed the secular West. This is where the West actually began calling itself the West, and also using that term to describe previous cultures like the Greeks and Romans. Skipping forward slightly, after the Second World War, the West lost its colonial power mostly, and the world entered the Cold War, which was an easy conflict to paint in terms of East v West, communism v capitalism. The Western identity solidified during this period. Who was Western and who wasn't was clear. But after the Cold War ended, I think the term the West lost that solid meaning, but it still continued to be used. So what exactly does the West mean today? How do you define it? Here are the usual economic, political and cultural definitions. Economically, the West is usually developed countries with strong economies and high incomes. Here it's used interchangeably with First World. Politically, it's countries with democratic governments and free citizens. And here it's used interchangeably with Free World. And culturally, it's countries with roots in Europe and the Greco-Roman Judean tradition that was built upon by the ideals of the Enlightenment, usually referred to as Western civilization. But these definitions aren't actually great for defining the West. For example, let's look at Latin America. Latin America, much like the United States and Canada, are inheritors of Western civilization through their European colonizers. Latin America, however, is rarely included when people speak about the West. They speak Latin languages, and while there are some Latin countries such as Bolivia, Paraguay and Guatemala that have strong native influence, they are still heavily influenced by the culture of their colonizers. If you look at this Human Development Index map, you can see that there are many Latin American states that are in the high to very high range, especially Argentina, Chile and Uruguay. Their political institutions and governments are based on the same principles as European ones. Democratic governments are the norm in Latin America and most rank just below the US and Europe on the Democracy Index. 
that America is definitely part of Western civilization and should really be included when people speak about the West. You can try and apply those three criteria to other nations too, like Japan, Turkey and the nations that were previously behind the Iron Curtain, to see if they match up with the idea of the West. And that brings me to my final point, criticisms of the term the West. An issue with the term the West, other than its vagueness, is that it implies confrontation. West of where? Different than where? Edward Said claimed that the West was just a construct used by Europeans to justify an opposition to the East, which could then justify colonialism. You see, the West usually defined itself by what it's not. It wasn't the Persians, it wasn't the Greeks or the Orthodox, it wasn't Islamic or Chinese or Indian, it wasn't Russian or Communist and now it's not Islamic again? The notion of an Eastern other has played a central role in constructing a Western identity and helped to define the West as its contrasting image. Which nowadays doesn't make sense because cultures and societies are mixing and learning from each other on an unprecedented scale. The West and the East need each other as our economies and societies will collapse without the other. Western civilization as a term is just an attempt to record the history of a cultural unit in an easily understandable and linear fashion, and it mostly does the job. But the West as a term is simply used to refer to a blurry area in the map in people's minds. Which is why it's useful for the news or for politicians. It's just vague enough to appear to mean something. So when you hear someone refer to the decline of the West or how a group of people hate the West, think, what are they referring to? What West? Is all of Europe, the Americas, Australia and New Zealand all in decline? Have people stopped reading Plato? Do these people that apparently hate the West simply hate whoever they see as their enemy, or do they actually hate all of the places that might be in the West? Even Liechtenstein? Can you really hate Liechtenstein? Yeah, um, it's just some kind of wacky term, you know, uh, that, again, and, and I, I know I like, I mean, in you, Ellen, you know, you've, you've edited my writings enough, you know, to have seen it where anytime I use the word Western civilization, I'll always put it parens, whatever the hell that means, you know, because again, we have no clear cut definition whatsoever, um, but it's supposed to be this thing that we fight for, you know. Yeah. And, which is insane and 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 it's insane in a lot of ways because it's also something it was tried and probably still is as even people who are libertarian or anarchist where okay so they don't believe in patriotism so you can't get them to like you know give money away to some bald ass hat you know for um you know over over what's happening to their country instead it's well but western civilization is going to go away if we don't do this or that and you know, so I, I feel like it was it was weaponized. The concept was weaponized to get people who don't believe in borders to believe in something, and that's disgusting. But anyway, yeah. what do you got? Well, it is interesting because if you take a grander perspective of Western civilization, mm -hmm. um, it I think at least it essentially comes down to a certain form of materialism. Yes, and of worship of the material realm, whereas different philosophy, like Eastern civilizations. Um, it, just take your pick. Generally, they have more of a spiritual depth to their lives mm -hmm, that, that mm -hmm. we lack. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's something I think that we are missing as a sure. Western civilization. Um, but I do think it is very apparent. Like, people in the West, they like their stuff. They like their the, the bounty of wealth that they live within. Yeah. And I... If you want to say that that goes back to the Greeks identifying the atom as the most indivisible piece of matter that exists, you know, you could make that argument. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, and, and 
you know, and, and that's fair. And in fact, I just had a thought as you were saying this. Um, but I mean, a couple points. One is the Greeks didn't, and I know you know this, but I, I'm just saying for the audience, you know, the Greeks really didn't invent much. They just lifted everything from the Egyptians, and we have plenty of evidence for that. Um, like even Plato. Plato learned all of his shit from the Egyptians. It wasn't, which are not considered part of Western civilization in any stretch, even in the modern day. Um, Would you make that same argument for Aristotle? Well, there is a... Uh, this is very complex, because there, there's a line of thinking of where did a lot of these ideas, you know, kind of come from. Um, I mean, Aristotle is a student of Plato, right? And I guess I'd say no, Aristotle wouldn't. Aristotle would be who more so fits into this idea of Western civilization. But in response somewhat to Aristotle would be Neoplatonism. It's a Friday night, and if I'm getting any of this a little bit off, I'm going to apologize in advance. But <laughs> um, We did just eat pizza. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway <laughs> there's um, a little bit of shame that comes along with that yes yes uh, so <laughs> anyway um it's okay i forgive you thank you yeah uh but then it becomes you know an issue of like well then where you know where did really neoplatonism come from which you know really became very dominant for a while anyway there's you can trace these lineages of thought in a lot of different ways, so it, it's it's tough to say very much for sure. Um, yeah, I I guess I'm just trying to hint at this point that in Western civilization we we tend to favor the the factual science and yes. that sort of materialism mm -hmm. over the the spiritual realm or you know the the energy field sort of basis that eastern people focus on more yeah 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 so bringing up aristotle makes a lot of sense then you know and then and you can carry that on to you know saint thomas aquinas and so on um i think yes this idea of everything is quantifiable is very much what i guess we would call a western invention um and that's not even something that comes out of the Egyptians. So maybe that's something that the Greek invented. That the Greeks invented. Uh, I'll say this, and, and this is the thought that struck me as we were talking about this. And we, we have other things to get into, folks. Don't worry. We're going to talk about aliens. Woo! Uh, but, um, Can I say though, Diogenes is still my man. Really? Yeah. Why is Diogenes your man? Oh, I just love that he's wandering <laughs> around with this lantern in the yes. middle of the day, looking, looking for, for an awesome. honest man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, some people could say, yeah, he was disgusting. He lived like an animal. Sure. But, like, he was closer to the truth than any of them were. Yes. Yes. A true animist. Not atomist, but animist. Anyway, uh, so, y you know what I think defines, like, Greek culture, but also defines what its progeny, if, if America and, you know, a lot of places full of white people... Uh, is its progeny. Um, Let me guess. What? Wheat. No. No, no. We <laughs> talked about that last time. In the last episode, we talked about the difference between cultures of wheat and rice. Uh, I'm but, just looking up at this book, The Works of Philo, and all I can think of is Philo Doe. Philo Doe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
that, but we did talk about this last time that do, that weed is something that Western civilizations have more than might, which might have actually created that, like a lot of the individualistic notions of Western civilization. Yeah, um, yeah. So here, here's I I think visually, you know, you might think togas at first, but I think very quickly you think of temples. You know, you think of you know the giant columns and everything. And this is what I, th in many ways, I feel like Western civilization is ultimately obsessed with, is temples, and lots of them. And because you mentioned the materialist, and, and, and I even say this, you know, when you say you looked up and you saw that, you know, the works of Philo there, but, and, and I look, and we just, and I've talked about this on Sovereign Tech in the past, but like, we, we build temples for our stuff, like our houses really aren't about us living in them you know they're they're just temples of stuff yeah and to on that point i don't think there's anything necessarily inherently wrong with temples i think that temples can be a great thing because it's a place that is you know you go there and it's a holy place and you are focusing on some specific characteristic mm -hmm, trait mm -hmm higher power, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's supposed to be an act of veneration when you go to one. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, Eastern civilizations probably have just as many as we do. Although oh, yeah. theirs, is, theirs are more focused on the, what they would argue is like the sources of power. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Well, I guess <laughs> for the Western civilizations, like uh, our stuff, some people do believe is a source of power, but... Yeah, I obviously mean, there's there's an inherent issue with that. Yeah, I guess my point. So I agree with you, and obviously look in Southeast Asia all over. I mean, there's there's plenty of temples to go around. Okay, uh, you know, in Japan you have Shinto temples like everywhere. Um, temples and shrines. Yeah, I think the thing is, yeah, and shrines. Right. The thing is, like, I don't feel like, especially in a lot of those cultures, that their houses are effectively temples. No, their houses are very minimalist. Right. That's the difference. And that's that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, and I'm never comfortable with that. And and, and, and I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of flat, uh, 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 whipping myself here because I feel like I'm sitting in this, like, surrounded by all this stuff. Yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot here, and I know it. And And I fall into this trap, it seems. Like, when life is getting a little more comfortable... You know, when things are okay, like, I start to accumulate. And You know what's funny? I do ahead. too. Yeah. But the stuff I accumulate is more like materials for projects. Right. Whereas the stuff that you accumulate is like a bunch of toys of things that inspire you. Yeah, it's all inspirations. I mean, and, and that's always my justification for it. But then, at the same time, do I really need that, you know? And... and and this is the other thing too that I've kind of come to realize about that. And yeah, your 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 stuff is way better than my stuff. I'm not saying it's better. <laughs> I mean, I think I am inspired by my things in a similar way that you're inspired by your things. Right, but yours is useful. So, but so, so but here's the thing: is part of the reason you know that like that I have this stuff. Yes, it's inspiring, but also it's to find people to that it's the same reason i wear like clothing that has some kind of quote-unquote hidden meaning right 
because I'm looking for the people that know what it is. And that way I can connect with them, you know, or at least they, they've kind of passed an initial test, right? And, but to, to some degree, like, none of that's really worthwhile anymore because now everybody's a fucking dork. I don't know why that happened, you know, but now everybody's a nerd. And so everybody kind of knows everything or not, not everything, but do, do, do you get what I'm saying? Like yeah, every, I, I guess. I mean, I think the things that you're into for the most part occurred before the internet age. Oh yes. Oh yes. So the people that would be into it are kind of of a different generation. Yeah. Some of it. Yeah. 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 But that doesn't guarantee that you'll want to befriend someone just because they've seen the, the Hulk Hogan movie where he's rip. Oh, right. Yeah. No holds barred. <laughs> yes. Right. I'm wearing a... I'm wearing, rip him. I am wearing a Hulk Hogan <laughs> uh, uh, tank top. Uh, but you wouldn't know if you didn't know what rip him was. You know, it, like it's from a, a movie where he's not playing Hulk Hogan, but he's still a wrestler. Anyway. Yeah. So... But I just, I think about this, and I, I don't, I don't know. I'm annoyed, ultimately, strangely, because in one sense, when I was a little kid, I would have loved it if everybody was a dork, you know, if everybody was like me. But now, kind of, everybody is. And, like, everybody knows who Iron Man is today. That's unheard of 20 years ago. Unfucking heard of. Nobody knew who Iron Man was. You know, and, and now everybody knows. Yeah. So, so it's not the filter that you thought it was. Well, not anymore. Not anymore. And and I, I, don't, I don't know what happened there. But because at the same time, and maybe this is what led me to like ending up with so much stuff, because at the same time, now there's money in all of this. Like in any dorky thing you think of, there's a market. You know, there's people who would, who, who will want to buy. And now there's things that get made that I never thought would ever get made. That I never thought would exist, you know, in some kind of physical form. And they do. And so I'm like, oh, well, and so I'm still, my head's still in the 90s. And I'm thinking, holy shit, somebody made a Tron figure? That's, that's crazy. You could only get those in Spain back in the 80s and everything. Like, I, I have to have it. You know what I mean? When the reasons for wanting it in the first place have been displaced. You know, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm sorry that they're not acting as the filter that they once did, but maybe yeah. it's time for you to reassess your filters. No, you're right. You're completely right. I, I, I'm i with you. And, and it's something I've been meaning to do, like to really reassess those filters, you know, or really reconsider like what, okay, what actually means something to you, you know, and, and that, that's... This is this is some great. <laughs> we didn't it's a plan personal on, journey that yeah. you're going to be undertaking. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't plan on talking about this at all, but this is uh, this is some nice uh, some nice opening uh, 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 catharsis. Catharsis, some therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I re I mean it really is insane, you know, because also again, because there's something literally for everybody for every little like crazy niche thing somebody could be into it exists and so now i feel like so many people's homes have just turned into temples of of stuff and that's not even getting into there's just too much there's 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 just there's just too much shit these days and i, I mean that on an entertainment level really um 
but that's that's a whole other subject. Do you have anything else you want to say on this? Otherwise, I'm going to use that as a segue. No, I, I agree. I think people um, have trouble deciding when enough is enough. Yeah. When it comes to stuff. Yeah. And, like... I don't. I don't really have a strong desire to have too much stuff. Mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I. I just want to be able to like make and create anything that I imagine, and I end up building a, a huge, uh, you know, stockpile of stuff, and it's just taking up space, and that in itself is a problem because I like my environments to be very like free and open and yeah. sort of feng shui, um, and. I get in my own way in that sense that mm-hmm. like I'm just cluttering up the house with a bunch of projects that I might do like once every few months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, that that's something that I need to work on as well. Is well, just y- cutting back on that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at least your shit does stuff, you know. Um, well, yours does too, but it's more of a. I don't know, more of a mental interaction? Yeah, yeah, which there's value in that, I get that. But, well, anyway, just another thought that that came to me is it's so funny to me that when, like, for example, you know, in, um, like, whenever there's an Apple, you know, the Apple, you know, the technology company, Whenever there's like an Apple ad or they're doing their their big keynotes or whatever, WWDC, and they're showing off the Vision Pro and all this crap, or really any of these companies, when they're showing stuff off, the people in these videos seemingly own fucking nothing. Like, it's so weird to me to, to, to see that. And, but at the same time, and again, I'm, I'm counting myself in this, so, so I'm ripping on myself here, okay? Um... Like, everybody recognizes how appealing that is, you know? To have the empty walls, to have, you know, like, all that free and open space. I feel like they they all kind of aspire to it, but then nobody lives like that. You know, again, everybody has their temples of stuff. And if I I just want to give a quick uh, 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 correlation, or corollary, and that is, I remember my grandmother growing up. Okay, now this is a woman who collected stuff. Holy fuck. But regardless, loved her to death. Um, she, we would drive, we used to go for like Sunday drives, you know, and we just drive around and just drive. And that's all, I mean, that's something we just did for fun. That sounds so strange today, but it's what we did. And we'd go by people's houses and she would constantly comment about how beautiful these people's lawns were. Okay. And now I was the one that was mowing her lawn. And so I always kind of took it personal, like because she never complimented her own lawn. But her lawn was a pain in the ass to mow because she had a ton of, like, yard ornaments in it and everything, you know? Like, all these weird plastic things and and all this other shit that I'd either have to take all of them out and then put them back exactly where they were, or I'd have to kind of mow around it and it wouldn't be very clean lines and everything. So all these people had these very clean line yards and they looked really, really great. And I'd tell her, it's like, yeah, that yard looks great because there's nothing in it. You know, and I'm trying to, like, get her to understand, like, the, the problem is you have so much shit in your yard, you know, and and it feels like the same thing, but... You didn't have to take that personally, sweetie. She wasn't she wasn't right. saying that to make you feel worse. No, I, I don't, yeah, I can recognize that now, but regardless, like, <laughs> it's like, 
grandma, like your yard could look like that too. Just get all the shit out of it. I think that's such a weird thing that people want to have those green deserts for lawns. Um, regardless, I, I don't know that people recognize the value in like a bare-walled, empty living room. It's like a, a museum in a way. Yeah. I think it's just a trend, honestly, in interior designing. It's like rich people being, you know, having a fresh take. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's it just always, it frankly, it looks fucking alien. And it's not just Apple. Microsoft does it too. Google does it too. They all do it. They all do it. And it's all so strange. These homes have nothing in them, you know. And I wonder if ultimately it's like some kind of subconscious appeal to just making everything digital. You know, like, yeah, you can have this clean space if you just upload everything into our cloud and let us know every goddamn thing about you. You know, uh, I, I don't know. But I have a hard time believing that. I have a hard time believing Tim Cook's house that he doesn't, that it's just some empty space. You know, it, maybe, fuck, who knows, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I grew up in a very sort of impoverished childhood, mm -hmm. and we still had stuff all over the walls and in the living room. It right. wasn't like, if you don't have money, you don't have stuff. Right. And rich people, for some reason, are recently like wanting to go that minimalist route. Yeah. I guess that's how they flaunt their wealth now is just by having everything like very perfectly white and clean and empty. <sighs> I don't know. It's weird. But at the same time, I feel like they're it, for companies like Apple and Google to mm -hmm. use that as a backdrop to their advertisements. Maybe they're just trying to be neutral and unoffensive. It yeah. could be as simple as that. Yeah, I mean and and like the stuff you have in there, you would have to like I don't know, say they had like a model Starship Enterprise or something on the table. They'd have to pay a licensing fee, you know, to be able to have yeah, that in there. that too. And I get that. Like, and I thought about that as well. Um, I just, I wish that they would appreciate, like, what they're putting out there, you know, and, and, and it's, they think about every, especially Apple, they think about every little fucking thing. They're like Stanley Kubrick about their, their goddamn videos. And... I think I'd like to know more about their thinking. Like, wh what are they trying to portray? What are they trying to parlay? So, anyway, you brought up a great point. We actually got feedback about lawns. We did. Yeah, from our last episode. Um, you know, because we were talking about uh, being environmentally conscious, you know, caring about ecosystems and everything. Yeah. Um, and one of the suggestions, actually, one of the people who suggested it was was Sek of the Agora podcast. Uh, you know, and he said, he's like, yeah, he's like, okay, you know, maybe, the, you know, EVs aren't the answer. This isn't the answer. But there's lots of little things. You don't want to give up on it. There's lots of little things you can do. And one of his recommendations was just don't mow your lawn every week. You know? Yes. And, and I was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want to mow your lawn like once a month or something, that's mm -hmm. acceptable. Right. Like, our lawn as it is now, we never mow it, period. Right. Because, one, we have pine trees growing around, so not much grows. Yeah. Two, we've got lots of mats of moss. Yes. Like, this really spongy moss. It's actually great. Yeah. Um, there's some tall grass that grows around. There's some weeds. But, like, I don't think they're... I, I don't see them as weeds. You know? No, no, I see no. it as part of, like, nature reclaiming this territory. 
Right. And just growing whatever is tough enough to survive here. Yeah, I mean, and it's very patchy. It's not like, you know, it's not like snakes can hide in it. Or, you know, because that's usually the argument for why do you mow a lawn? Because, oh, you don't know what's crawling around on that lawn, you know, and you let your kids out there. It's like, well, maybe you should have your kids have a healthy respect for nature, you know, <laughs> and not walk around uh, uh, barefoot all the time or something. I don't know. Well, I but, don't know. I don't think there's a problem running around barefoot. No, I, don't, I learned I don't a either. lot of valuable lessons running around yes. barefoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't either. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, if you're worried about snakes and whatever else... Yeah, yeah, from my experience, snakes typically stick to the tree line. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, if you have a yard, they're not just going to be, like, out in the yard, unless that's the only place where there's sunlight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, like, along the tree line, they can still be, like, close to escape. Right. But in the sunshine. Right. I don't yeah. know. I could be wrong about this. But, yeah, I mean, just be careful when you're yeah. walking outside if, if you have an unmown lawn. Yeah. I mean, and, and I do want to reiterate, because you're talking, like... I'm fully supportive of kids walking around barefoot. I mean, I wear five fingers all the time. Like, I love barefoot. Barefoot's great. So, <laughs> not not knocking it. Um, anyway. Yeah, actually, in one of the newsletters, I wrote a whole piece about, like, all of the things that you could plant in your yard or do with your lawn. I mean, instead yes. of growing grass. Yes. Because grass is it's not environmentally friendly. Even right. though it's a, a plant, which is like, you know, it does photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. But... There are things that take up less water, that return nitrogen to the soil, that actually feed the pollinators or whatever else. You know, there's things that you can do that are better for the environment. Yes. Study permaculture. Permaculture is a great and wonderful thing. If you happen to pick up a newspaper these days, you'll probably find a growing sense of despair regarding climate change and environmental degradation. But there's been an astounding effort from countless communities to cull the rising tide of environmentally irresponsible actions. And among this surge of modern nature-related groups and philosophies lies the promising ideas of permaculture, which when unpacked provides us with a solid toolkit for not only tackling the difficult environmental challenges ahead, but also for thriving in a transformed world. Permaculture, a term coined by Australians Bill Mollison and David Holmgren in their 1978 book Permaculture One, was originally a contraction of permanent and agriculture, but has since blossomed into a more inclusive combination of permanent and culture. As Mollison readily admits, permaculture is nebulous. It's a little difficult to define what the permaculture community is. But those two words, permanent and culture, hit at the philosophy behind permaculture in the sense that it gives people a set of tools to rethink and redesign their communities so that they can live seamlessly with the natural world. And by working with, rather than against, nature in order to grow food, for example, permaculture bolsters not only the health of the land, but also its practitioners. In doing so, the concepts and practices of permaculture build communities that are adaptable to a changing climate. Jono Niger sums up these ideas in his book, Permaculture Promise, wherein he writes, Permaculture is about rebuilding much-needed relationships with people, land, and the systems that support us. Through these relationships and a positive approach to change, permaculture seeks to build resilient cultures and communities. At the core of permaculture teaching lies three ethics. 
earth care, people care, and fair share. While earth care and people care at their simplest forms are the concerted efforts to nurture natural environments and surrounding communities in your everyday actions, fair share is a bit less self-explanatory. The concept of fair share is essentially the synthesis of earth and people care and acknowledges that there is one earth that we all need to live on. So surplus, whether that's food, money, or time, should be shared with those who are otherwise languishing or be returned back to the earth. These three ethics ultimately intertwine to create an effective moral base on which permaculture practitioners can build and transform their local systems. They're essentially guideposts for tangible change. In practice, permaculture can take a variety of shapes. For instance, Jordan Osmond over at Happen Films toured Purple Pear Farm, an excellent example of permaculture at work wherein each natural system feeds off each other, thus creating both abundant food for the farmer and a healthier ecosystem. But permaculture can also mean projects like City Repair in Portland, which applies permaculture principles to artistic and ecologically-minded projects that help reinvigorate local community relationships and the natural world. Now more than ever, permaculture is important because it brings to the table tangible and ethically-based solutions for systemic change. It moves beyond sustainability and into resilience, looking towards not only surviving, but thriving in a quickly changing natural world. Starting at a local and personal level, the concepts of permaculture work to wean people off an industrialized and consumption-centric worldview, and replace that materialistic perspective with a new outlook that emphasizes ethical interactions with nature and a community-oriented lifestyle. Ultimately, this new worldview brings us closer to appreciating the source of our sustenance and our desire for interpersonal connection. And if we can rekindle this understanding that we need thriving natural systems to live, as Derek Jensen said so perfectly at the beginning of this video, we will then defend those natural systems to the death. All right, got anything else on this? I think we can get to our stories. Yeah. We've been talking for almost half an hour. I can't believe that about nonsense. But I, I, I hear from listeners that they love this kind of banter. So you got it. <laughs> but, but let's get into let's get into some show, shall we? Um, and I guess want to open up talking about you and I, Ellen, we saw uh, last Sunday. Uh, so it was opening weekend. We saw the Oppenheimer. Um the movie of the summer, you know, that a lot of people are claiming between that and Barbie. Uh, even though I'd give movie of the summer probably to Mission Impossible, but whatever. Um, but we saw Oppenheimer, and I say the Oppenheimer just because it's considered this this amazing epic and everything. Uh, and I think it'd be fun to get in a bit of a review on that before we start talking about aliens. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, be because they go together so well. Kinda. No. <laughs> Depending who you ask. Um, anyway, this movie, of course, made by Christopher Nolan. Um, this is one of those event films where I think everybody kind of knows, like who's involved, who the players are, you know, all of that. Um, so I don't. We don't necessarily have to spend so much time on that. Uh, but of course, the lead character, that being J. Robert Oppenheimer, is being played by none other than Cillian Murphy, fantastic actor, 
worked with Christopher Nolan many, many times on his Batman trilogy, Sunshine, go down the goddamn list of the movies. He's been in most of them. Um, Christopher Nolan, definitely one of the auteurs, film auteurs of our time. Uh, tremendous writer, tremendous director. Um, really delivers the goods. Has made some of the greatest movies ever. Um, even though I'm not the biggest fan of Inception. People are probably going to give me a lot of shit for that, but deal with it. Um, did you ever see Inception? Oh, of with, course I with did. DiCaprio? Yeah. yeah. What did you think? Oh, I thought that took a very cool, interesting concept um, and turned it into an action movie. Mm. You know, it, I think it could have been more than it was. Yeah, But yeah. I still really enjoyed it, and I've had moments of Inception, you know, being an, in, a dream in a dream. Right, um, right. And it's very startling to have those experiences. So sure. it was cool to have somebody make a movie about that. Sure. Although the suggestion that, like, you don't know if you're dreaming or awake... I, I don't like that at all. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very unsettling on a deep level. Yes. Um, yeah, boy, we could get into an entire subject around that. Uh, but I I don't buy into... Um, that's uh, the, 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 the original brain in the vat uh, theory. That, like, I, you know, this could all, all my entire life could be a dream and a demon is tricking me. You know, I think there's ways to know if the demon is or is not tricking you, uh, as it were. But and could you apply that to holograms? Yes. Okay, well, that makes it a little less unsettling, but still. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like to think that there are ways also to mm -hmm. to check whether you're, you know, sane or insane. or Right. If you're in a dream or in reality, but... I guess um, that was the point of the spinning top, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... I mean, I get it. Good movie, Inception. But, like... I, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where... It's a moot... For me, it, it, be, it became a movie that makes people think they're smart when they think about it too much. You know? Uh... And because of that, it sort of loses its edge. Yeah, yeah, do, do I think get, I get what you're saying. It's it's a way for people to feel like they've had an intellectual experience, right. but really what they're seeing is just this like very interesting psychological phenomena where a group of people are trying to implant an idea into someone's mind without them realizing that it's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. Which, you know... it. it in the end, you could argue that Nolan was doing to people when they see that movie, right? Uh, which is going to play into some of my thoughts on Oppenheimer. But there are there are those moments where great directors, great writers will do that. Um, a show we, we've been going through, it's been taking a while, but we've been going through is Neon Genesis Evangelion. And this is a very controversial show, partly because... In the end, you kind of find out that the director, the writer, was sort of making fun of anime fans at the same time that they're obsessed with it. And it's this weird situation. But anyway, we'll get into that in the future. Um, I didn't give anything away. Don't worry. Like, there's there's no explanation for for that show. Ultimately, uh, anyway. Okay. So Oppenheimer. Um, 
again, I'm going to I'm going to revisit the point that we were just talking about with Oppenheimer as, as we kind of go through this. Uh, all right, what did you think of Oppenheimer? Good, great, terrible. I thought it was good. Good, yeah. not great. Good. I don't know that I would call it great. Why wouldn't you call it great? Um, well, because as a student of science, mm-hmm. I wanted to have more of an experience. Like, this was a unique experience to have all of the greatest minds of the quantum physics revolution together yes. in in person being presented. And there's this character that you can, you know, live vicariously through as he meets all of these amazingly famous figures. Sure. Um, you know, like Linus Pauling or Schrodinger. Yes. Like he meets them per- in person in the movie. And that's very cool, but, like, you learn almost nothing about these people just because they're in the movie. Yeah, I don't think he... He, he didn't meet Linus. So, I mean, he met a um, uh, German guy with the heavy water experiment. Um, it begins with an H. Well, it's terrible. Friday night, my mind's fried. Heisenberg? Heisenberg. He meets Heisenberg. He meets Bohr. Uh, of course, Einstein's there. Pauli? Yeah. Okay. Of the poly exclusionary principle. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but he didn't meet he didn't meet Linus Pauling. I don't think he was. In, but but that's an omission that we should talk about. We'll get to that. I'll talk. Okay. So I'll get into uh, very quickly. I'll say why because I want to hear you know more of why it's not great and and I think I'm I think I'm getting your point. You know that there's all these great characters. You wanted like a scientific version of the Justice League to come together in this? Is that what I'm hearing? I thought they would have given more backstory to the scientists and made it more personal, but instead it it was all about Oppenheimer. You know, it yeah. wasn't... And I guess maybe what I want is just some sort of, like, historical documentary that takes time with each one of these scientists, but, mm-hmm. like, it, it just felt like they were throwing out names so that you would recognize them and be amazed. Right. Yes. And the only theories that they really spent time on were Oppenheimer's. And his work in organizing the whole town that blew up around um what was what was the city that he he built? Oh, Los Alamos. Yes, Los Alamos. Yeah. Yeah, in New Mexico. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. PO Box 1663 was listed as a Santa Fe, New Mexico address in 1943. And over the next few years, about 300 babies had it listed as the place of birth on their birth certificate. Because the real location was a secret, everything sent to that P.O. box ended up here, 33 miles from Santa Fe, at a site also known as P.O. Box 180, Project Y, and Los Alamos, New Mexico. A secret city had been built there. And it was home to a community of scientists. Scientists of many nations. The scientists who created the first nuclear bomb. They lived a couple hundred miles from the site where their invention would be tested. New Mexico Desert. Trinity. How did laboratory director J. Robert Oppenheimer end up building a town and testing the first nuclear bomb? Here. Albert Einstein sent this letter on August 2, 1939. He sent it to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, drawing from the work of physicists Enrico Fermi and Leo Szilard, 
Einstein warned of a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium. The splitting of the uranium atom. Which could lead to extremely powerful bombs of a new type. Bombs that either side might develop and use. After a couple of years of study, as well as the American entry into World War II, in June 1942, the Army Chief of Staff established a temporary headquarters at 270 Broadway in New York City. The Manhattan Project had begun, and it was called a new Manhattan District for the Army Corps of Engineers. This map shows contemporary boundaries for Army Engineer Districts. Administrative areas. The Manhattan District encompassed all these smaller districts because of its larger scope to build an atomic weapon. Less prominent secret locations included a nuclear reactor under a University of Chicago football field, the Alabama Ordnance Works for producing heavy water, and many others. 1942 and 1943 saw the establishment of three major sites. It began with Oak Ridge, Tennessee, sometimes called Y-12, a large plant for the enrichment of uranium and production of some plutonium. Nestled between mountains, it became a city where 75,000 people worked in absolute secrecy on history's most sensational secret. Two other major locations were established in 1943. The Hanford Engineer Works in Washington State was responsible for much of the production of plutonium. The top of this water tower there read, silence means security. But Hanford and Oak Ridge were nothing without the third site. The army needed a place to create the bomb. This is the Los Alamos Lament, a poem, sometimes sung, about life in Los Alamos, written by technical sergeant Ralph Gates. It begins, I'm just a PO number. Specific numbers varied. The third verse reads, He put us on a mountain outside of Santa Fe, where the only sign of wildlife are GI wolves at bay. Oppenheimer, based in Berkeley, had believed that a central lab was key. While they considered Oak Ridge and Chicago as lab locations, neither was remote enough. An option near L.A. wasn't isolated. One closer to Reno could be hit by heavy snows. General Leslie Groves Jr. of the Army Corps of Engineers ran the project. Oppenheimer and Groves agreed that New Mexico offered the security of isolation as well as familiarity, since Oppenheimer had spent time in the area. The ideal site sat on the Pajarita Plateau. It was isolated, but also protected by its altitude and surrounding geography. Jemez Springs, chosen first, proved to be too difficult. The land was too difficult to acquire, and the terrain was too rugged. But nearby Los Alamos was atop a tableland between mesas, which made it easy to control entry and control any accidents. Much of it was on already federally owned land as well. The only existing structure was a small school that had opened in 1935. The owners sold. The Secretary of War wrote the Secretary of Agriculture about the military necessity of acquiring the remaining federally owned lands. The request was granted for 54,000 acres of a demolition range. Los Alamos was activated on April 1st, 1943. P.O. Box 1663 transformed from an outdoorsy ranch school with buildings like this into a community doing the most advanced research in the world. Roads were quickly developed, but the town was kept isolated. 
Population grew from 1,500 people to 5,700 by 1945, so rapid that hutments were a common form of accommodation. Here you can see the wash drying by Quonset huts. Apartment buildings were also available. These accommodations mingled next to facilities for graphite fabrication and the cyclotron and Van de Graaff machines. In early years, Los Alamos housed the world's finest researchers. Here, Dorothy McKibben, in charge of receiving new personnel, sits next to Oppenheimer. He's chatting with physicist Victor Weisskopf. Here's Enrico Fermi on a hike. And this is Edward Teller's ID badge. He was later called the father of the hydrogen bomb. The medical corps colonel wrote Leslie Groves that this intellectual group created challenges for a military operation. The large percentage of intellectuals will require and seek more medical care than the average person. Other challenges? One-fifth of the married women became pregnant in Los Alamos, making maternity wards a necessity. The past and atomic future intersected. Ice was cut from nearby ponds and stored in ice houses because electric fridges were too hard to get. At the time, the Bindix washer was revolutionizing laundry. And by 1943, a classified ad in the Santa Fe New Mexican was looking for one to be shipped to P.O. Box 1663 for wartime work. A cultural phenomena, as varied as they were, like this Los Alamos band, they had one real purpose, building a bomb. And they needed a place to test the bomb that they built. This is the base camp at Trinity Site, a rapidly established headquarters created for testing the first atomic bomb. The Desert Training Center north of Rice, California was runner-up, but it wasn't isolated enough or close enough to Los Alamos, located in the Hornado del Muerto Valley. The winning site was selected with a more extreme version of the Los Alamos criteria. Flat terrain to minimize blast effects, isolated yet close enough to Los Alamos, good weather, and nearby to highways like US-85 and 380. More than 200 residents settled at the camp. First, there was a 100-ton explosives test in May 1945. Then, they prepared the gadget, nuclear device. And on July 16, 1945, they conducted the test. First tryout of this new cosmic force was held on the New Mexico desert. The Los Alamos Lament was written after that test, but before the August bombing of Japan. Yeah, so... I, I hear you. They spent so much time on Oppenheimer when there's so many other brilliant guys that they could have kind of brought in to... Uh, yeah, I'm just saying they kind of like... They didn't give the due uh, respect to those scientists, mm-hmm. I think. You mm-hmm. know, they featured them and you say, ooh, ah, for a couple seconds, but then yeah. they're like gone. Yeah, I mean, on a meta level, it's also... I. I I think Christopher Nolan, I'm not going to say he did that necessarily on purpose or what, but like this is a movie where almost everybody everybody is an actor that you know or have seen somewhere else. You might not know their name, may have never known their name, but you're like, oh yeah, that guy, oh that guy, that gal, that gal, that guy. You know, like it, it was crazy. Like I saw actors in there that I haven't seen in, in 20, 30 years. Um, and and I kind of feel like Christopher Nolan was sort of, I mean, one of the thing is, one of the things is, so this movie is not linear. 
No, it's very strange in that it has three different storylines playing mm-hmm. at the same time. Right. And it's it's like a past, present, and a future. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you kind of have an origin story, then you have building the bomb, and then you have the epilogue of that. You know, what comes after, you know, building and dropping uh, the bomb. Um, and, you know, it's, it's funny, because I... So, your description of that, how did you feel about that? Because they kept playing... Like, they kept shifting it around, because, again, it didn't work linearly. Like, you're going back and forth, basically, between years. How did you feel about that? Yeah, I did find it a little confusing at Mm -hmm. the time. Um, I don't know that it helped to tell the story any better. Um, I think it was more of a creative decision. Mm -hmm. But um, it all did come together in the end. Right. All three of the timelines sort of uh, merged Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. into the ultimate conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in a good good way, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it ultimately worked. It ultimately all came together. thing is, there's, there's not really a whole lot that goes on in this movie. You know, one of the things that, that it was billed as was... There's no CGI in it. What do you mean there's not a whole lot that goes on? I mean, it's not an action film, you know? Well, no, but you get to learn so much about Oppenheimer's personal life. Yes, yes. Okay, but there are very, very clever tricks that I think are done in this movie to keep you, to keep everybody interested. You know, I've yet to hear anybody say this is a bad movie, you know? I haven't heard everybody say that it was great. You know, uh, but but I've never I've yet to hear anybody say that this was bad, and apparently everybody's going to fucking see this thing. So, you know, you're getting the dum dums in seats, and they're hooked. You know, and but again, compared to a conventional summer Hollywood film, there's not a whole lot going on in this movie. Okay, and I think the ways that he is that Christopher Nolan is making that happen. Part of it is is he did bring in every fucking actor under the sun. Um, so that, you know, when you're watching it, just like he brings in the little, you know, Einstein, Bohr, and whoever else, he's doing the same thing with the actors that he brings in. He brings in actors where you're like, oh yeah, I know that, I know that name, or I know that guy, and like, and there he is. And it's just another way to kind of keep you hooked. He's, he's basically just dangling a carrot in front of you throughout the entire movie. Now, of course, another way he does it is through music. The music effectively never stops, which was weird for me. The only time I can think of where there was not music is when the bond drops, or when they do the test. It was unusually silent. At that time. Yeah, but otherwise, throughout the entire film, it's it's all music. And it's by Ludwig Göransson. And Ludwig Göransson, of course, is brilliant. He did the score for The Mandalorian. That's probably the thing he's most famous for. Um, and, in fact, I, I, I know I've commented recently. I was like, well, where is Ludwig Göransson? Is he doing anything? Well, I guess he's been working on Oppenheimer because, holy shit, that's a three-hour movie. And he had to do effectively a three-hour score, or at least a two-hour and 55-minute score, which that's a lot, uh, you know, for, for one one straight film. Um, so these are the kinds of things, I think, that kind of that kept the film going. So, okay, you're feeling that you wanted, 
you wanted more exploration of the other scientists and you wanted to get into that and that kept it from being great that was one of the things that kept it from being great i think what i wanted was just so i i respect that this movie was telling oppenheimer's story but yeah i also feel that it would have explained more if they had shared more maybe about how like the other scientists around him at the time inspired him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know where did he get his ideas from right and they show these characters surrounding him and like occasionally they'll mention a new theory or that one that's like very groundbreaking mm-hmm. um i i guess i just wanted more out of the story it felt kind of surface level wow surface level yeah okay okay uh, what other things kept it from being great for you outside of that? Uh, maybe just that. I, I'm not really sure. I mean, there was a lot of tension in the movie. Yes. Um, and that was very interesting to experience, too. Like, um, the Red Scare happening around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hunting down of communists. Yep, McCarthy era, sure. Mm-hmm. Yep, and... Um, you know, just the the rush and the pressure, or at least the perceived pressure to build a nuclear weapon, mm-hmm. um, and also the fact that the military was running the project at at the end of the day, they were running the yeah. project. Yeah. And just how like shocking it was to see, you know, Oppenheimer sometimes trying to voice the opinions of the scientists that he was working with, mm-hmm. and the military just blatantly disregarding it. Mm-hmm. And saying, keep your mouth shut, otherwise you sound like a traitor. Yeah, it was interesting to see how many people, or how many scientists, and throughout the film, especially when they do realize what they're building, and that there's a chance that it's going to get used, I mean, they're like constantly petitioning, holy shit, no, don't don't drop it, don't use it, you don't need to. You know, Yeah, there's uh, a point where they're even saying the best thing we could do with this is never use it. Yes, yes, right. Yeah, uh, that was fascinating to, to see that. Um, the and it was disturbing to me because there was one scene where they're they're in a meeting, like all the scientists working on the Manhattan Project are in the same room together and they're saying, we should just not drop it. We're afraid of what's going to happen if we do. Like the mm-hmm. whole world is going to destroy itself. Mm-hmm. And Oppenheimer comes in and in a very creepy, unsettling way, I don't even think he was convinced himself of what he was saying, but he was like, well, we have to do this because it'll show the world how powerful we are, and Mm -hmm. if we demonstrate this power, then there'll never be war again, and it will ensure a peace that no no point in history we've ever experienced. Right. And I feel like he was full of bullshit, and he knew it. Why do you say that? Because he was uncomfortable while he was saying it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like... He was under so many other pressures to get this project done Mm -hmm. that he was just trying to get people to go along with him and finish it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I don't genuinely believe that he was convinced. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating, too. I'll admit, I don't think that's something that I really ever knew was the chance. It was theorized that when you dropped the bomb, that the bomb wouldn't stop. And that would actually like ignite the entire atmosphere and basically wipe out all life on Earth. Um, that was insane, and that's true. 
like now I know and I've looked into it that that's true and they went ahead anyway and boy that's uncomfortable you know <laughs> so, well if that happened we wouldn't really know no right we wouldn't care because we wouldn't <laughs> be here but at the same time like oh man um, and you know the movie highlights and, and again you know there's some things I, I don't feel like much of it was really I mean there's parts of it that I'm sure were dramatized but it's more that there were things omitted than there were things added into it. So it's a it's a pretty good biopic. I mean, it was based off of an actual you know nonfiction book uh, called American Prometheus. Um, so you know when your when your base text is is nonfiction, you're usually you know that gives you an opportunity to be in better company. But they brought up the idea that you know look Japan is going to lose like like. You know, and a lot of people don't realize this. The nuclear bomb didn't beat the Nazis. The Nazis were already beaten. You know, the Russians took care of that. Um, this was about stopping the Japanese. And, but at the same time, like, and they even bring it up in the movie. Yeah, but the Japanese can't last much longer anyway. Yeah, so there was no need to do this. But go ahead. They started but, developing the bomb while Hitler was still in power. Right. It was a race to develop it before Hitler could. But even so, he died before they deployed it. Yeah. And they were questioning whether they should continue with it or not. And they're like, oh, well, let's just pick a couple cities in Japan. Right. Right. Yeah, and they did it anyway. And, man, it, it's, you know, it's a movie you watch... And it's just so accurately disturbing, you know, like I think it actually portrays, and this kind of speaks to what you're saying, I think it, it very well portrays how a lot of humans think and how they were thinking at the time, especially politicians, people involved with this. And man, that just, it leaves you with a, just a pit in your stomach, you know, like it's yeah. just, it's not a good feeling. Oh, it's so gross. I mean... There, after the bomb was dropped, Oppenheimer was, you know, counting up the, the human losses. Mm -hmm. And there's one point where he's in the president's office and he says, I feel like I've got blood on my hands. And the president just fucking mocks him. Yes. He pulls out his hanky and he calls him a crybaby. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, nobody ever let that crybaby in here again. Um, yeah. He's Truman. like, yeah. I'm the one that dropped the bomb, not you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... It, it's just very unempathetic. And yeah. there are other moments in the movie where, like, military personnel behave in that sort of very rude, abrupt way. Mm -hmm. Of, like, just, you know, be quiet and carry on. Do what you're told to do. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. I mean, and, and it's funny how they tried to get the scientists to, like, wear military uniforms at first. And it's like, stop that. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> Which was good. Um, yeah. So... I mean, are there other other nitpicks you have of the film? Other negatives of of the movie? I I don't know. I mean, I thought it was a very interesting movie, mm -hmm. very cool. Um, you know, there there was the the character played by Robert Downey Jr. Yes. Um, I forget his his name. His Struss. character's name. Struss. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, he plays a very complicated role yes. in this movie, and it's actually very interesting to find out just how complicated his role is mm -hmm. as this movie plays out. Mm -hmm. um, and then you find out, like, if... So Oppenheimer kills 
thousands of people with the bomb. Yeah. I mean, not not exactly his fault. He wasn't the one that dropped it, of course. Sure. But he knew what he was doing while he was developing it. The entire time, he knew it was intended to be used on humans, and he knew that there was going to be fallout radiation sure. and all that. But he's not necessarily painted as a bad guy in this movie, mm-hmm. but Strauss is. Yes. Because he's setting up Oppenheimer to be uh, to have his security clearance revoked. Right. And that is like the ultimate evil in this movie, which I'm I find kind of strange as well. Like you're supposed to love Oppenheimer and you want mm-hmm. him to have the security clearance because that allows him to do whatever work. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I mean, I feel like he was a weak uh, villain. No, you know, you raise an interesting point that I hadn't really thought about because, like, what's the big deal? You know, ultimately, I mean, is is it that we got to shut up Oppenheimer because he's talking about, uh, you know, disarming nuclear weapons? Yeah, you know, it, yeah. Like, is 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 that was the big deal? Were, were they that concerned about that? I mean, that's just that's so weird to me because you can get people that are wildly influential to say that sort of thing. And I don't think they're going to get like defamed or but they're, they're not, not the even going to get a slap on the wrist. They're not the person that ran the program that built the bomb. Yeah. And especially at the time there was still the uh suspicions of him being friends with communists. Yeah, you know, which was in a in a very uh I don't know, paranoid way, mm-hmm. it made him seem guilty. Yeah, so, key, key term there, paranoid. I think, I get the sense that, you know, most people, the average person today in the real world, you know, are always, like, kind of conspiracy, or I think many people, really, and today especially, are conspiracy-minded thinking i i know everybody thinks oh you're, they're all the sheeple no 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 just about everybody's conspiracy minded you know today and and i think there there's this idea that oh you know uh, um you know that the politicians don't care they just run roughshod or whatever um and we're all just paranoid of how is the government going to screw us today i get the sense sometimes that that politicians are actually infinitely more paranoid than we are <laughs> like <laughs> Uh, and and this movie kind of hit that because yeah, because the mob could tear them to pieces. Yeah, well, yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Great point. You know, all it takes is that one wrong move, I guess. But it, it's just that I mean, you're right. It's just it's such a shocking thing to me that you know now that I think on it on the film, it's like really like you were worried that Oppenheimer was saying get rid of the nukes, and so you know you you, you need to like just completely debase this guy and it, it just doesn't t- t- to my mind that doesn't compute but then I don't know maybe that's a modern thing because you know to me it's amazing what I can say behind this microphone and there are at least on a legal level on a civilization like there's no repercussions you know no, nobody's locking me up nobody's you know as to where and I get it that in other countries you certainly could get locked up for some of the shit that we say but um, 
ah, that's just mind blowing to me. It, yeah, it, it well, seems like a weak premise. It but was go ahead. it was kind of part of the argument to tear down Oppenheimer, but mm-hmm. ultimately what it goes back to is Strauss being egotistical and vengeful against sure. him because Oppenheimer embarrassed him at one point in the future in the past. Right. Um, there was some sort of hearing where yes. he basically got laughed out. Um, and so Strauss took it upon himself to basically defame Oppenheimer. Yeah, and to take away the one thing that he loved the most, which was his security clearance. Yeah, yeah, a vindictive guy. And yep. in fact, there's even a joke in it about Kennedy, as in JFK. And I mean, you know, I don't think it's a huge reveal, but like when you find out how Strauss reacts to Opp- what Oppenheimer did, and when you find out JFK is involved in discrediting Strauss, uh, I think there's a there's a there's a weird insinuation in the movie that Strauss is the guy is behind JFK getting shot, getting assassinated. Yeah, that's kind of funny that they threw that in there. It's just a little thing. Like, it was a, it was a one-liner that, that they put in, and I, I found that to be kind of strange. I also really love the scene that he recounts where Oppenheimer and Einstein are meeting on, mm-hmm. like, Oppenheimer's first day teaching at this institute that Strauss kind of runs. Yep. Um, and they're, so they're talking out by the pond. Einstein starts to walk away. Strauss runs into him, but... Mm-hmm. He won't say a word to him. Mm-hmm. So this whole time, for like years afterwards or whatever, Strauss is thinking that Oppenheimer must have said something to Einstein to turn him against him. Right. But then um, at the end of the movie, when you find out what Strauss has done to discredit Oppenheimer, there's this man who's been interviewing him kind of this whole time. Mm-hmm. And he says to Strauss, like, well, maybe they were talking about, you know, something more important than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you then they play the scene where you find out what they were actually talking about. Yeah. Um and I I thought that was a great way to end the movie. Yes, it was. It was. It was. Um I have a theory on that end scene and I don't want to detract away from talking about the rest of the film in as it's presented yet. So I'm going to save that for a minute, but that gets to my earlier point about like this movie having kind of a weird meta layer. Um, but I mean, I think everybody was on their A game as far as acting. Cillian Murphy was phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Robert Downey Jr. was great. Um, they, mm-hmm. Yeah, ev- everybody just delivered. The music was great. The effects. I mean, here's the thing that I mentioned earlier. Everybody was talking about, oh, there's no CGI in this movie. Fuck, there doesn't need to be. they could have made the bomb look bigger or something i don't know but you're right there's absolutely no reason right to add cgi right but i mean it's like i don't know saying there's there's no meat in peas and cornbread it's like well no shit it's peas and cornbread it doesn't need meat in it you know like it's just a claim that doesn't make sense you know and and this is another thing too that i want to bring up and this is kind of speaking you know more real world on it uh Boy, Christopher Nolan made a huge deal that you should see this on IMAX. This was made for IMAX. You don't need to see this in IMAX. Like, <laughs> there's nothing special about this movie. And IMAX, I think, is crap anyway. Um, well, apparently it's all fake. There's only, like, 12 real IMAX uh, theaters in the U.S. or something like that. Yeah. And all the rest are, like, cheap knockoffs. Yeah, so there's some truth to this. Do, do you mind if I... If I Go for it. D- ...digress into this? Um, okay, so... 
I went to, I mean, of course, I grew up in New York, okay, and, you know, all the new theater technologies, the, the two places that they end up first are L.A. and New York City. And I used to go to IMAX movies, real fucking IMAX movies. IMAX movies, originally, yes, it's the giant screen, okay, but IMAX movies originally were 3D films. And you used to have to wear this huge fucking headset. Forget about the, the, the Apple Vision Pro. This thing was gigantic. You can look up, there's pictures people can find online of like Magic Johnson wearing them or whatever. Anyway, and, and it had like the, these, you know, the, 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 the shutters on. I mean, it looked like you were wearing 3D glasses, but again, it was a gigantic headset. And the speakers were built into the headset and you had the, the, the shuttering system built into the lenses that created the 3D effect. Okay, and your your Hollywood blockbuster movies were not being made for IMAX at the time. It was all custom films. Um, in fact, you used to be able to buy them on DVD, and they'd have in big bold letters on it. It would say IMAX. Like there'd be, and usually it was like documentaries, but sometimes there were movies. Like there was L Five City in Space, and there were some other ones. Um, but you know, like IMAX movies today are not that. That was an event. That was an amazing technology. That felt like, holy shit, I'm watching movies in the future. It's just not how it is now. You know, and Dolby Atmos doesn't make it any better. So this idea that you need to see it in IMAX is complete horseshit. Like, and, and I think that's true pretty much for every movie. Um, it, it's, it's just a way to, to sell more expensive tickets, and I'm sure Christopher Nolan got a better payday out of it. We fell for it, or I fell for it anyway. Um, but it's just it's it's meaningless to to have to do with that regardless the movie's gorgeous i mean the movie's stunning you know and the special effects that are there are amazing and look wonderful um the the writing you know a lot of the lines in it a lot of this i mean like it's just it, it's a very it's a movie where you and i i and tell me if you disagree with me but i didn't want to go to the bathroom like i mean it's three hours fucking long i have to go to the bathroom but I didn't want to go to the bathroom. Like, I don't want to miss a second, you yeah, know, because I'm see. worried I'm going to miss something. Uh, so it was that gripping of, of a film, in, in my opinion. Um, I thought it was great. I mean, I really, like, I, I thought it was I thought it was a great, great movie. Um, but I totally hear your your concern um, or, or, you know, your, your critiques as far as things that, you know, would have been nice if it went into this or, you know, whatever. Like, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Linus, well, I don't need to have everything that I want, you know. No, of course. Of the movie was still good, the way yeah. that it was. Yeah. Um, Linus Pauling not being in it, that that was kind of disappointing to find out after the fact, because, well, you find it, I mean, they kind of show this in the movie, that Oppenheimer's a womanizer. I mean, he's, frankly, he's a scumbag. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in, in a very real way. Um, and they parlay some of that, or, you know, they portray some of that in this. Uh, but you find out that like he he was really great friends with Linus Pauling, and he actually wanted to bring Linus Pauling onto the Manhattan Project. Uh, but Linus Pauling said, no, "Fuck you! I'm a pacifist. I'm not doing this." Which kudos to Linus Pauling. Yeah, that's really cool. Yes, um, but also he apparently asked Linus Pauling's wife, "Hey, you want to come to Mexico with me, and and we can go have a good time?" And and he he means like let's go fuck, you know and like this, this again this guy's scum <laughs> and and he's in i mean the odd thing is that a lot of these scientists at this time 
he, he's sort of in good company. <laughs> and I don't mean good in the, in, I mean that uh, uh, sarcastically. Because, you know, you got Jack Parsons, you got a lot of these characters who really, you know, as far as um, uh, morally, what people consider good morals, especially in America at the time, they did not have. And a lot of them were womanizers and whatever else. And anyway, it, it's, it's interesting to, to really see that. Um, I don't know if this movie got made, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if they would have allowed for it, but it's here on this one. So what other thoughts do you have about the movie? Did you walk away from it scared about of nuclear war? Well, yes. I mean, yeah. that's something that I kind of live with constantly, though. Yeah. Um, I don't know that this movie exacerbated that anymore. Well, the claim is for a lot of people it did, you know, and, and, and that a lot of people really hadn't thought about it until they watch this movie and now they're suddenly like holy shit and we still use nuclear weapons it's like oh yeah well i mean the fact that they haven't thought about it just means that they're not paying attention mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because nuclear weapons are still around have been around ever since their development right there's just been more and more right yeah it definitely brings it to mind i mean and i know we were talking coming out of the film we're like well how far away do we have to move from Boston to not be in the uh, the danger zone, as it were? <laughs> yeah, uh, there was a scientist that was really into the H-bomb. He was trying to develop that alongside mm -hmm. the nuclear weapon. And yep. they said it was like a 100-mile blast radius, yeah. which is huge. Like, yep. that's massive. And if that were the case, I think we need to move a little bit farther north. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, from any major city. Yeah, because yeah. the H-bomb is a real thing. It's within our grasp. Oh, oh I mean, the, the nukes we have today, the, the supers, I mean, they're... Yeah, it's it's crazy, the, the, the power that those have. The explosive power. Yeah, and it's just so fucking dumb that all... Like, every major power in the world is building up this arsenal of, of nuclear weapons and they're developing technology so that missiles can fly over the oceans and hit and it's just like guaranteeing our our destruction we sure. might as well have just blown up and burned off the entire atmosphere with that first nuclear weapon yeah yeah just learn the lesson fast or well there's no one left to learn but <laughs> yeah, i mean honestly to save ourselves we need to dismantle these weapons and turn them into power plants mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know it, that's like the only good thing that can come of this yes yeah nuclear energy wonderful thing um yeah so do you have any other thoughts in the movie that you want to get out there um yeah i i guess as a scientist i want to say that i f there's a part of me that feels bad that this amazing technology was taken advantage of mm -hmm. but also watching this they walked into it on their own uh, but i can't say that i wouldn't do the same thing under those circumstances mm -hmm. like have the opportunity of a lifetime to devote your life to something that you're very passionate about and not have to worry about funding right that's incredible and not many people get to do that but at the same time, I don't think I would ever partake in a project that I knew could do harm to anyone in any way. Yeah. Like, what I do now is literally just making medicine. And it's not like Pfizer medicine, mm -hmm. where, you know, it's prescription drugs that people take but don't need. It's like, if people don't get these uh, cell therapy treatments, they will die. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it anyway I'm just saying I really am a little disappointed and I don't want to judge them too harshly but I just wish that the scientists on this project had you know taken the pacifist route yeah like Linus Pauling yeah yeah or even I mean Einstein didn't even want to be involved you know uh and I like in the movie there's the insinuation that Einstein actually could have figured all I feel like there's this insinuation where Einstein is saying like look just because I don't agree doesn't mean I don't understand and 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 I I think it was he was almost saying that I could have figured all of this out I didn't do it because I knew what would happen you know like I I feel like there's the insinuation of that that Einstein could have built the A-bomb but he knew the disaster that that would be and so he didn't yeah maybe I mean Einstein was known to make mistakes on occasion oh sure like there's the very famous instance where he wrote a letter to the president urging them to develop the nuclear bomb because he was afraid that the the Germans would do it first right which is referenced in the film yeah it wasn't until years later when he said publicly that he regretted doing that Mm mm-hmm well, and, and this is something, again, that the film accurately, historically highlights. That the the A-bomb didn't win the war. You, like, it, it was... Th- that was not... It, it. You could argue that it ended it earlier than it would have anyway, but it didn't win the war. You know, Germany fell because of what Russia was doing. You know, Germany did not fall because of the A-bomb. Um... And I would, I could even, I think an argument could even be made that they wouldn't have fell even with the H bomb, like even if they had developed it, you know. Um, frankly, if there wasn't the narrative, and it's not just a narrative, it was accurate, that the Nazis were the bad guys, right, and that they were going to do what it, they ran roughshod on wherever they went. Um, you know, I'm amazed that the entire world didn't like stand up to the U.S. and say, "No, no one is allowed to have this technology," and that like essentially you had, you know, like the entire world went to war against the U.S. Uh, because they're just so terrified of this technology. Like, I'm amazed that that didn't happen in history. Yeah, or if not terrorized and horrified by the technology, um, mm-hmm. I, I think you know, at least I would have preferred if the world had learned a lesson from Hitler killing millions of Jews, putting them in concentration camps. Um, You know, if there had been a realization, like, that guy's a monster. What he did was horrific. Right. Um, Let's not support any government or any leaders that decide to mass murder. Yeah. And that's what these bombs were. Yes. That's what they did. Yes. They mass murdered people and also put them through torture you know the ones that didn't die instantly just mm-hmm. lived on to die slow painful deaths mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i don't i don't know why there wasn't this realization there there may have been critiques but <laughs> why people didn't just stand up and say like you are monsters right that you that made the decision to drop this nuclear weapon mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't some sort of radical uprising at the time. Yeah, no, and and by and large, there's been no real uh, mass historical criticism uh, of, you know, the realization that Japan was going to fall anyway. 
Like you you didn't have to do this. You know, and 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 they never have to do it. Well, right. It's never necessary. Right. Yeah, it The movie brings up an absolutely seminal point in history that uh I hope is getting revisited by people. I'm a little worried that everybody basically went and saw the movie and then just forgot, you know, two days later, uh, because they just got the barrage of whatever other information. Barbie. Barbie, right. Huh. <laughs> so, oh, and the uh, UFOs. Yeah, which we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So I'm going to lay it out. I mean, I, I, I thought this, like I said, I thought it was a great movie. The more I thought about it, now, a movie can work on multiple levels, right? It can have multiple meanings, okay? And Christopher Nolan's that good of a writer and director where he can write a movie that is straight up a biopic of Oppenheimer, okay? But I kind of feel like with the end of the movie, and spoiler alerts, folks, the end of the movie, Oppenheimer basically says to, to Einstein, and this is what you, you, know, you find out what the conversation was, he, he basically says to Einstein, you know how you're worried that this might end the world? And, and, and Oppenheimer says, I think this did. I think this is the end, you know? Well, he, he was talking about the theory that the atmosphere would ignite when mm -hmm. the bomb was dropped. Mm -hmm. And he's bringing up to Einstein, like, remember when I came to you, those calculations that said it would set the world on fire? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we did. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it, it's an, it seems like in the context of the film, at a superficial level, it is a warning. It's a great ending. And it's, it's a warning of, yep, we unlocked Pandora's box and we can't lock it back up and it's over. And sooner or later, someone's going to drop these fuckers and we're done. Okay. Um, but I honestly, there's a big part of me that feels like this entire movie was actually a metaphor for Hollywood and that this movie is the sign of the end of Hollywood and that that last moment was you know like like I mean even the whole thing about the bomb like that this was gonna this is the last epic this is the last you know everything changes after this um, there's a part of me that really feels like that, that I think Nolan might have been trying to get that message out there because he plays on those levels. Um, I haven't seen anybody say that. You know, this is just my own thinking on the matter and the fact that Hollywood is on fire right now. Um, just a thought. So I'm putting that out there. But a great movie worth seeing, you know, and it doesn't matter, you know, if you know what happens and all that. I mean, again, it's all mostly historical fact anyway you're in for a great time uh, with this film. Very engaging. Very, you know, definitely holds your attention. So, any other thoughts on Oppenheimer? No, I think we've talked about it enough. Okay, yeah. Move on. So, let's talk about aliens then. Let's get right into it. Um, Are you going to fuck them? Am I fucking... <laughs> <laughs> you, <Sorry. shared> <laughs> you shared all this crap with me on Instagram of, like, all these people are like, you know when the aliens come, we're going to fuck them. Like, we're going to have sex with them, you know? I don't know if this is people making fun of James Kirk or if it's something else. <laughs> but, yeah, there's been a lot of jokesters out there saying that they're they're just going to have sex with the aliens. Yeah, I think that... I mean, as funny as it is, 
I think it's totally spot on. I think a lot of people are just going to do that. They don't care, you know? <laughs> I mean, how many people fuck without giving a shit about other people's biology anyway? You know what I mean? And what I mean by that is they don't care about their medical history. They don't care about this or that. They're just like, yeah, let's do it, you know? Yeah, how many people? Plenty of people. I mean, look at all the poor gals that had to deal with Usher. Like, that's insane. So, you know, anyway, I think people are going to do this. But <laughs> did I miss something? Yeah, I think you did, but that's okay. I We're, was making a jab at you. You a jab at me? <laughs> well. Yeah, in one of your past lives. That's fair. All right, that's fair. Anyway, so <laughs> fortunately, I'm a much smarter man now. Well, maybe not much smarter, but I'm smarter now. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Thank you. Yeah, and amazingly, I did come out of all that with, you know, disease-free. So, <laughs> a miracle. Uh, it, it is. It is. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so, despite the fact that everybody's going to go fuck the aliens, uh, maybe that's why everybody's paying attention to the UFO hearings that happened this week. Uh, you know, I teased this on the Wednesday Q&A for patrons. You know, I said, yeah, Ellen and I, we're going to come on. We're going to talk about it. And it's odd that it seems like every time uh, that Ellen comes on, we end up talking about UFOs or UAPs. Aliens. aliens. Now, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it's kind of hard to believe this was such a big story earlier this week on Wednesday. Okay. It's kind of hard to believe that people don't know all that was said but just in case i do have a link from the guardian where they cover the high notes um and so well you can tell me because i don't pay attention yeah that's okay it's a short piece so i'm going to read it we're going to go through it so here we are this is from uh it's yeah wednesday july 26 2023 in the guardian uh ufo hearing uh key takeaways cover-up claims and pentagon denials witness made several startling allegations about the u.s government and ufos but doubts lingered over key testimony which kudos to the guardian for saying yeah but something wasn't right about this anyway Let's read on. Uh, in scenes that felt reminiscent of a science fiction movie, the U.S. Congress held a public hearing on claims the government is covering up its knowledge of UFOs. Unsurprisingly, the hearing generated huge interest in the U.S. and around the world as it as it heard from three key witnesses, including David Grush. I don't know if I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, a whistleblower, former intelligence official who in June, and that's June of 2023, claimed the U.S. has possession of, quote, intact and partially intact, end quote, alien vehicles. UFOs have become a high-profile news story in recent years. The U.S. military says it is actively trying to investigate the small number of sightings for which there is no obvious explanation. So I'm going to stallion break in here for a second. Now, Ellen, you've been on past episodes of this show where we've talked about these you know these events these uaps this video where well the air force can't explain what the fuck is in this yeah and you know. we've talked about bob lazar as well yes correct also bob lazar who claims to have worked on alien craft um which david grush is is bringing up so or he's not bringing up bob lazar but he's bringing up partial or intact alien vessels um okay so reading on uh, as the hearing unfolded, there were no, this is a key thing, there were no new revelations about aliens, 
but there were startling allegations from witnesses and a general sense that a cover-up exists somewhere in the U.S. government, as well as skepticism that has anything to do uh, with, quote-unquote, little green men, end quote. So, Stallion breaking in again. Um, again, kudos to The Guardian for some honesty here. We'll get, we'll get into, uh, we'll read off everything, that the, the key takeaways. But there was no new revelations whatsoever in this hearing. There was nothing. There wasn't just no new revelations. There was no evidence. There was zero fucking evidence. There's witness testimony. But even most of the witness testimony, especially from Grush, was, was he said, she said. It was... Wait, didn't the, the story say there was no new evidence about aliens? But there was startling revelations about... Allegations, the, not revelations, allegations. Allegations, okay. And that's but, the thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I'm just saying what they said specifically was that there's no revelations about aliens or mm-hmm. little green men, mm-hmm. but that's not the case for the actual UFOs themselves, the vehicles. Well, even with the vehicles, like there, were, there was nothing new stated compared to what was said in June. Okay. Um, and and actually, okay, so there's some kind of new thing stated, but we're going to talk about that because Grush did a little press tour after after his initial announcement in June, where he talked to other papers or other news outlets, and that leads to some troubling things within this hearing itself, and we'll talk about that. But one of the key things I want to get out there is there was no evidence whatsoever presented in these hearings. None. None. Zero. That's it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, because I think everybody, like, and they showed. I, I saw, I watched this, and I saw the video, and all these people are showing, like, the lines of people that are trying to get into the courtroom to talk or whatever. And it's like, what are you people expecting? That, yeah, that, it's not like he pulled out a vial of some unknown element from his right. pocket and, yeah. and showed it as yeah, evidence. It's not, right. It's not like he said, here's Moscovium. Okay, this like is Bob element one thirteen. Yeah, that he has right, exactly. Um, and and we were talking about this earlier, and I was like, it's not like he, you know, whipped out like an alien hand and said, "Here's the proof." You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> which none of these guys can ever fucking do. They they never do, and we'll get into that. Um, so anyway, again, no evidence was was presented at these hearings. But let's let's here are the key takeaways. Let's read it. Claims of a cover-up. The U.S. government conducted a multi-decade program which collected and attempted to reverse-engineer crashed UFOs, David Grush told the hearing. Grush, who led analysis of unexplained uh, anomalous phenomenon, UAP, uh, within a U.S. Department of Defense agency until 2023, claimed he had been denied access to secret government UFO programs, said he has faced quote-unquote, very brutal retaliation as a result of his allegations. He claimed he had knowledge of, quote, people who have been harmed or injured, end quote, in the course of government efforts to conceal UFO information. Okay, so I'm going to, Stallion breaking in again. This, quote, people who have been harmed or injured, end quote, what he, the full quote of what David Grush said was he heard from someone else that that had happened and then that's my point is that he's constantly saying it's a game of he said she said he's like i was told by this person he doesn't reveal the names i was told by this person i was told by this person i was told by this and essentially claiming you know 
Now, some people are wanting to say that he's using these words as in, I'm revealing that, that the U.S. government has aliens or has spacecraft. Um, but I've never seen them myself, myself. And he said that in June, that he has never actually like seen them. Um, and so now the claim is the reason he can actually come forward and be a whistleblower is because he's not committing treason because he didn't actually see these things. You know, he's just presenting information from other people. Um, th this runs into all kinds of problems, but... Yeah, especially since Bob Lazar did see the UFOs and was allegedly on one. Right. Um, and worked on them. Right. But he hasn't been sent to jail. I mean, yes, he gets raided every Yeah, he gets again, harassed. Yes. He's still out there. Yeah. 30 years ago today, KLAS aired a live interview with an anonymous man who made some really astonishing claims. He alleged that the U.S. military was secretly studying alien technology out in the Nevada desert near a base that is now very well known all over the world. Area 51. A lot has changed in the decades since Bob Lazar first told this wild story. The Pentagon recently admitted that it really has been secretly studying UFOs and then it wanted to figure out and duplicate that technology. George Knapp looks back at that 1989 interview that started a whole new conversation. It's totally impossible. Uh, the propulsion system is an, uh, a gravity propulsion system. The power source is an antimatter reactor. Uh, this technology does not exist at all. The claim sounded like Hollywood sci-fi. Months later, when his identity was revealed, Bob Lazar said he worked at a secret facility near Groom Lake where alien technology was being reverse engineered, that is, taken apart to figure out how it worked and whether the Pentagon could duplicate it. This is the simple drawing he made at the time. Here now I had access and was permitted to view and look at the operation of this main level with the gravity amplifiers and the level below. The premise seems the less preposterous means. now. In a new documentary about Lazar, he describes in detail the spacecraft he worked on 30 years ago. The craft that I worked on, that when it's, when it's going to travel a long distance, that is how it operates. It flies along and it, it puts its belly to the target and then brings all the amplifiers to power and you know, it shoots off in that direction. It doesn't fly as it would in a science fiction movie. It flies with the belly, the bottom forward. If the description of a spacecraft tilting sounds familiar, take a look at the so-called gimbal UFO, a video released by the Pentagon in 2017. Naval pilots encountered a fleet of these unknown craft off the coast of Florida in 2015 and have since had dozens of similar encounters. The spike in UFO incidents prompted a recent policy change by the Navy, which announced it wants to encourage its pilots to report future incidents. Pentagon officials reluctantly admitted to the New York Times 17 months ago that the military has secretly studied UFO incidents, in part so it might figure out the technology. In the gimbal video, there's a mechanistic turn against the wind without deceleration. So we have a craft without rotors, without heat signatures, without plumes, without tail fins, and certainly no tail number, moving in a way that is counterintuitive to our own aeronautics. When Bob saw that, he came to the conclusion this has to be a gravity-propelled craft. It's rotating. That it does mimic exactly the propulsion system that Bob Lazar described. This story is extraordinary. 
Jeremy Corbell directed the Lazar documentary, but he also broke the story about another now-famous UFO incident, the 2004 Tic Tac encounter. The Navy pilot who engaged the Tic Tac, Black Aces Commander Dave Fravor, has said he doesn't believe the astonishing craft was made on Earth, that the propulsion might be anti-gravity. When Lazar was shown the Tic Tac video for the first time, it immediately reminded him of the sport model. His name for the craft stashed in the desert. There's no question in my mind. I, I mean, I'm virtually certain that's the way the craft operated, and that uses close to or the exact same propulsion system. Former Pentagon intelligence officer Lou Elizondo was in charge of ATIP, the secret Pentagon study. He told us one goal of the project was to determine the physics of UFOs, how they can achieve the seemingly impossible. The military came to believe the craft relied on special metamaterials, stuff that can't be made with known technology. Lazar made similar claims decades ago and was ridiculed. Now the Pentagon is on the same page. Where the study of UFOs did not end in 1969 with Project Blue Book. In fact, that was a lie, and it is now an admitted lie by our own Pentagon. We are living in a world where it is understood that there are craft technologically advanced from unknown origin that are performing maneuvers that far exceed anything of human technology. This has been going on a long time, and our government has been studying it. George Knapp, 8 News Now. Yeah. So, again, this guy, David Grush, is not bringing anything really earth-shattering to the table. Okay. Um, and he's not bringing a lot of his personal experience. The only person that, that can really corroborate, openly at least, anything he's talking about is his wife, which, hey, you know, sure, that's the one person you trust in the world, right? Is <laughs> your partner. But... At the same time, it, in my opinion, doesn't speak too well for him. So let me, we'll go on to the other uh, bits here. So uh, next subheader is hints of violence. Congressman Tim Burchett asked uh, Grush if he has any personal knowledge of people who have been harmed or injured in efforts to cover up or conceal extraterrestrial technology. Grush replied, yes. Uh, Burchett asked Grush if he has heard of anyone being murdered. The former intelligence official answered, quote, I directed people with that knowledge to the appropriate authorities, end quote. So that's where he's admitting that, like, it's based on what other people said, you know. And again, throughout, throughout the hearing, he would constantly say, look, I have to be careful how I say this. And I understand that. Me, I, you know, I, I get it that he has to be careful how he phrases things because he could, you know, perjures himself or whatever. Um, but it all comes off as kind of weird. Yeah, well, another thing, too, is that in these sorts of positions, um, you very much stay in your lane as far as mm -hmm. what your job is. Mm -hmm. And people with other job roles may have been the ones exposed to that sort of action, you know? Right. And, and Grush was just in a position to know about it, but it wasn't his job to actually be there, which, like, clearly that's what he's saying. And yeah. I could believe that there's that sort of delineation, mm -hmm. um, especially within the military mm -hmm. or within government sure. organizations. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, it, like, it's, it's a possibility. I'm open to that possibility. But... You know, what's the classic Carl Sagan line? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yes. Okay, we have no evidence. 
Mm-hmm. We've got a guy saying, you know, secondhand, all this shit. And, you know, so... W- yeah, I mean, there's two options here, basically. It's mm-hmm. either one, he's trying to protect all of his co-workers were on, who were on the front lines of mm-hmm. this UFO conspiracy cover-up. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is that he basically was a target of a PSYOP mm-hmm. where... He was being fed all of this information by yes. agents of a different organization covertly, right? Um, knowing that they were going to push him in this direction, maybe yep. because he did something that they didn't like and they wanted him out of the organization, and this was how they thought they could achieve that at the same time as pushing some other agenda, like Bluebeam. Oh, Project Bluebeam. Woo! There it is. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll get into that. But we do know for a fact that intelligence agencies in the United States have fed misinformation about UFOs uh, to U.S. citizens, um, you know, in in nefarious ways. I mean, and, and like we we know that this has happened. People have died over it. He photographed UFOs. He actually photographed a UFO over Dulce, New Mexico. But how can I have faith in what you're telling me if I know that you lied to Paul Benowitz? I didn't, I didn't lie to Paul Benowitz. I had a job to do. I, I wasn't a maverick. I just didn't go out and do this on my own. My supervisors told me, listen, we don't want him to go out to the public, go on camera and say, hey, I just tapped into a secret laser on Kirtland Air Force Base. Obviously, we can't have that happen. So all I had to do was say, well, you know what, Paul? Maybe what you did see was UFOs. Look, we've established in history and documents through the Freedom of Information Act, the CIA and the military complex as a whole has really aimed to essentially mislead the public when it comes to UFOs, tell them something that necessarily is not the truth. We've seen it time and time again through the decades over and over and over. You know, so it's not your your option two is not that outlandish. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna propose an option three at the end of this, but anyway, uh, let's let's get into next one is Pentagon denials. But the Pentagon has denied Russia's claims of a cover up. In a statement, a Defense Department spokesperson said investigators had not discovered quote any verifiable information to substantiate claims that any programs regarding the possession or reverse engineering of extraterrestrial materials have existed in the past or exist currently. End quote. Yeah, well, of course they would say that. Sure, they kind of have to, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, at the same time, that might not be a lie, because what if there are craft? What if there are aliens, but they're not extraterrestrial? They're just, you know, they're either ultra-terrestrial or they are, you know, from planet Earth itself. Um, Which I always find to be far more likely, those last two. So, just tossing that out there. Um, Next one. Other uh, witnesses, other claims. Other witnesses at the hearing uh, were David Fravor, uh, a former Navy commander who recalled seeing a strange object in the sky while on a training mission in 2004. Ryan Graves, a retired Navy pilot who has since founded Americans for Safe Aerospace, a UAP nonprofit, claimed that he saw a UAP off the Atlantic coast, quote, every day for at least a couple of years, end quote. The sightings were, quote, not rare or isolated, end quote and were being witnessed by military air crews and commercial pilots, quote, whose lives depend on accurate identification, end quote, Graves said. 
Graves said UAP objects had been uh, detected, quote, essentially where all Navy operations are being conducted across the world, end quote. Asked if there were any common characteristics to the UAPs that have been sighted by different pilots. Graves says sightings were primarily of, quote, dark gray or black cubes inside of a clear sphere, end quote, where, quote, the apex or tips of the cube were touching the inside of the sphere, end quote. Now, that's very particular. I've never heard of a UAP described like that. Right. I've heard of cigar-shaped ones and yep. saucer-shaped ones yep. and even bell-shaped ones, yep. but the square or the cube inside of the sphere, that's a new one yeah, for me. That, yeah, and, and that's very particular. And again, he's basically saying that we see these all the time, which is strange. Well, based on other testimonies I've heard, I could mm -hmm. believe that. That they're seeing these? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On yeah. a very common basis yeah, yeah. You know, it's very often that they run into something and they're unable to identify it right and, and to be clear that's not grush saying that that's that's someone else it's like, a pilot yeah it's a pilot um who and and i agree with this point in fact the last time i think elena you were on and we were talking about uaps i raised this very point these are people whose lives depend on having accurate information confirming what they're seeing you know and not bullshitting you know, and I've been there too. Uh, I mean, not that I was a pilot, but I've been in those scenarios as well. You can't bullshit over the radio. <laughs> you know, that, that's a fast track to getting to, sent off to Leavenworth. Like, forget it, uh, you know, when you're in the military. So anyway, um, yeah, that, that, that is interesting. That part is interesting. That's not even necessarily anything new, but they added it in. That, that, that's interesting. That has nothing to do with Grush. Uh, so let's go on to the next one. Doubts linger. Not everyone was convinced of Grush's testimony. At times, he appeared less forthcoming under oath than he had been in media interviews. In the interview with News Nation in June, Grush claimed the government had, quote, very large, like a football field kind of size, and quote, alien craft. While he told uh, La Parisian, a French newspaper, that the U.S. had possession of a, quote, bell-like craft, end quote, which Benito Mussolini's government had recovered in northern Italy in 1933. Um, so let's stop on that one That's for a second. That's interesting. Yeah, because that sounds like the Glocka, right? Mm -hmm. Which, of course, is the the Nazi, supposed Nazi craft um, that was shaped like a bell. That's why they called it the Glocka. Um, yeah, that one's kind of weird, but like that's not anything new, right? You know, I mean, it's interesting to suggest that Mussolini found it in '33, um, but well, let me read on a little bit, and we'll we'll talk about that more. On Wednesday, he was reluctant to go into details on those claims, citing issues of security. Uh, Garrett Graff, a journalist and historian who is writing a book on the government's hunt for UFOs, tweeted, quote, Very interesting to me that Dave Grush is unwilling to state and repeat under oath at the UFO hearings the most explosive and outlandish of his claims from his News Nation interview. He seems to be very carefully, danced, or very carefully dancing around repeating them, end quote. Yeah, if it was a security matter, he wouldn't have said it in an interview. Yeah, it's it's an odd thing. Like, he's under oath, and so now suddenly he won't talk about the bell. He won't talk about this. I mean, it kind of feels like he cherry-picked UFO cases, which I agree are compelling, you know, like de Glocka, uh, but then he won't talk about them under oath. Uh, 
anyway, th- there's more saying hopefully there will be legislation that will come out of this. That that's that's nonsense. So, <laughs> and I don't really care. Legislation to come? What's that? Well, it doesn't say what it is. That that's the thing. Is it's like. Well, I can read it quick. It's just a paragraph. Uh, in his closing remarks, Republican Congressman uh, Glenn uh, Grothman described the hearing as illuminating and said he believed legislation would follow. Grothman, the chair of the House Subcommittee on National Security, the Border and Foreign Affairs, said, quote, Obviously, I think several of us are going to look forward to getting some answers in a more confidential setting. I assume some legislation will come out of this, end quote. That's the end of the story. So... Well, yeah, I mean, he he's, what is he, a subcommittee on national security, the border, and foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's somebody who doesn't like aliens in the first place. Yeah, right. <laughs> well said. Unless they have documentation. Yeah, yeah, unless they, they paid their ten bucks at, at Ellis Island. and <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, so if there is a chance that there's some alien beings coming mm-hmm. to this planet I mean he's got to make sure that they have documentation yeah and that they know the Pledge of Allegiance can speak English a little bit as, and, as long as yeah. they know that America is the foremost power in the world right and they recognize it then yeah right. then yeah, they then fine. they can be here yeah good point <laughs> so, <laughs> um, we love you yeah. America <laughs> we uh, want our country back oh fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah so do the Native Americans. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, man. Um, okay. So what do you think? I mean, you hear all this. What goes through your mind, Ellen? Um, yeah, suspicion, I suppose. Um, like, obviously, I want it to be true that there's some sort of life out there that is above and beyond humanity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I don't know that this is the answer, you know? I, I feel like they, if they wanted us to know about them, they would just show up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, my, you know, my response is, like, just drop the evidence. Just just put down the fucking smoking gun. Let everybody see it. Otherwise, shut the fuck up. Like, <laughs> like to, to some degree, you know? Yeah, uh, because people who, who do know about this know about Project Bluebeam. And if you're not going to give us evidence then it just seems to be playing more into that narrative yeah yeah so well here's all right i'm 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 gonna lay out my thoughts real quick on this and i so i had planned when june when grush originally came out i said oh no 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 this is pr nonsense like this guy didn't say this there's there's so many holes in how he's having to present this information there are so many problems with what he's saying uh and I was going to do a whole episode on it and find whatever, you know, I haven't had the opportunity to do that. So I'm just going to lay out some of these ideas here fairly quickly. And one of them, first off, a lot of conservative asshats were rightly bringing up the uh, amazing coincidence that this hearing happens at the same exact time that the Hunter Biden hearing is happening, you know. Yep, that is a surprising coincidence. <laughs> so that the news and everybody wasn't keeping, it wasn't paying attention to what was happening with Hunter Biden or any other like actual, genuine, provable egregiousness that the U.S. government or its nepotism is engaged in. Um, but you know, so there's that. But the other part for me is, you know, in a in a low key way. I mean, I've brought up from a cybersecurity perspective that the world is already in World War Three. 
Okay. Uh, in, in a very real way, the world is at war right now. You know, Russia-Ukraine is not just Russia-Ukraine. Um, I don't think that's an outlandish thing to, to say. Um, and where does China fit in with all this? You know, the Chinese government, where do they sit within this? Well, you know, I don't, I don't think that the U.S. and China would be considered buddy-buddy. Um, and in the past few years, the Chinese government has, the Chinese military has shown having more advanced technology than even what the U.S. military has. Hypersonic missiles, all kinds of things. Okay. Um, I can't help but feel that this whole thing is just to try and scare the shit out of Russia and China into thinking that the U.S. government has, you know, alien spacecraft and advanced technology. But the U.S. doesn't really have that. And there is a long-running theory that Project, not Project Blue Beam, which we could talk about that, but Project Blue Book ultimately was all about, like, the, this whole, the, the UFO phenomenon that was happening in the 60s, you know, uh, you know, and a little bit beyond that, was the same situation. It's just a PR play. It's just to scare the Soviets into thinking we have more advanced technology, that the U.S. has more advanced technology than it actually has. Um, that doesn't explain all UAPs or all UFOs, but this really feels like one of those scenarios where this is a this is a tactic to get a group, a certain group of people to think a certain way. What do you make of the recent UAPs? I think is the new term, Eric. You need to get up with the times here they're not ufos anymore that's the old that's the... i wasn't even in this game when it was ufos so, okay uh, okay know. so what do you make of the recent uap stories and attention and response and subsequent response um i'd like to ask you first so i had a look at the uh first whistleblower from about two months ago quite closely with andy stumpf who mm -hmm. used to have pretty high-level security clearance, and he explained to me about how unimpressive that particular type of security clearance is, how very which, common. Which one? This is David? Yes, David. Fravor? No, not not David Fravor. Who was no, the... no, no, no. David Fravor was the Tic Tac. Correct. This is uh, David Gorush? Yes. Okay. Um, very common level of security clearance. Uh, that you're using that as some sort of, uh, oh, this is a legitimate credential doesn't really wash too much that it was second or th it was third-hand information mostly second-hand information kind of i heard from a person who saw right. or who heard right um it just seemed to me to be rather on the face of it unimpressive that release i see what did you think <laughs> well like i've been telling everybody um these are highly conserved stories. This is not the only person I've heard this story from. I've heard this from multiple people. There, there are various versions of this secret world which play out as space opera. You know, the, then MJ-12 became the real government that only even the president could, couldn't understand. You know, and it's like, okay. So... That's the weird part about it until you start realizing how sober many of the people are who believe this and who claim to have had direct contact with it. 
and then you don't know what to do. I mean, in other words, whatever this is, there is a thing. It's not necessarily little green men. It could be, for example, that they mock up a floating spaceship in a hangar and then they uh, drag people past it and say, whatever you do, do not look to to your left or right or you'll be shot. And then, of course, people look and then like mission accomplished. Now people will say, oh, my God, you have no idea what we the U.S. has incredible technology. And then maybe the idea is you've got a cover story. Maybe yeah. you've, you've got the your, your adversary investing in things that don't make any sense. I don't know. But there's not nothing here. This is not about Mylar balloons and seagulls anymore. I'm trying to come up with a word for it, but it's like a... It's like recursive false flags yeah. in a way where the goal is not to give or hide truth, the goal but is, to fire hose with information so much that the truth can no longer be discerned. It's a haystack of bullshit to make sure that any needle is very difficult to find. <laughs> it is. Yes. Bullshit haystacking. I love right. it. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. They, they haystack the crap out of this thing. I have no question that there was something that was used to develop U.S. aircraft like the B-2 bomber and the SR-71 Blackbird. So if you see something crazy in the sky, better that you think it's a UFO from outer space than some advanced thing from Lockheed. Mm. I have no question that we use this to deal with things like the Chinese balloon shoot-down where we shot down several things in a week and we couldn't recover debris from any of them. I mean, come on, guys. Um you know, maybe the idea is that this is a, a a head fake to our adversaries to develop the wrong things and to use their treasure on things that won't work. Maybe there's a secret program uh, where some of this stuff is actually real and true, and we're not allowed to know it because it would be too mind blowing. Maybe there's a cult uh, inside of our government that has replaced angels with saucer shaped aircraft. Um. Whatever this thing is, it's being used for many different purposes. There's something here. We just don't know what. It's, you know, this is the problem. The princess can't feel a pee because that would be impossible. The princess feels a disturbance. And you can't say what the disturbance is. Maybe it's a golf ball. Maybe it's a cantaloupe. Maybe it's a banana. But whatever it is, there's something wrong with the mattress. <laughs> Yeah, it seems to me this fire hosing, the goal of uncertainty. Mm, right. How do things muddle out? Who wins in a muddle is a great question we're not taught to ask. Sorry to jump in on no, that. No, tell I just me more. Love, yeah. Always look for who is trying to muddle to win. Like Very often you're in a dispute with entrenched status quo. And somebody will say, well, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on this one. I'm like, oh, well, who wins if we agree to this? Oh, it's you. <laughs> right? Yeah. This is like an old principle of mine, which is that you can always tell who's guilty by who de- first declares a time of healing. Why? Why is that a razor to use? Oh, because if you do something wrong and the public is clamoring for, for, for your blood, you say, there's been too much... Uh, blame and finger pointing on all sides at me. (laughs) 
it's, I, I think what we need is to come together and declare a time of healing. For me. Right. So I believe that in general, whoever declares a time of healing is suspect number one. That's a very nice uh, razor to use. <clears throat> I wonder about this. Oh, how would you say? Epidemic of uncertainty. Brilliant. Speaking my language. And I wonder... How, first off, how as an individual you are supposed to put up any kind of effective defense to just take some sovereignty, being, you know, an agentic individual. Right. And secondly, I wonder what the end goal is. I, I understand why uncertainty would be useful for manipulation, because if people can't discern truth from untruth, it can be easy to poke them and prod them and, and float them in particular sure. directions. Right. But it also seems like, I don't know, kind of also useless as well that some people, um, non-insignificant, large cohort of people will just reject it entirely, which actually, they're doing. which actually makes it more chaotic and more unruly. So it makes me think, well, maybe if this is the case, if the fire hosing is happening, right. this epidemic of uncertainty, Maybe the outcomes were predicted but haven't manifest in the way that was intended. Maybe there's more of a rebellious streak in Say more about that. I'm not trying to understand it. That if people who if you make the public very uncertain about most things by right. overloading them with information, or by even the it doesn't even need to be coordination, it could be a byproduct of having twenty four seven access to the entire world's population through Twitter and Instagram stories and blah blah blah. Right. There is so much I can no longer discern, even due to a multiplicity of opinions that's not coordinated to be a multiplicity that go in opposite directions. Right. If it was coordinated, the outcomes that are occurring at the moment, a lot of the time don't seem to be happening with people just, oh, roll over, tell me exactly what to do. There is a massive, non-insignificant cohort of people that say, I'm checking out and I now no longer trust anybody at all. And right. that doesn't or seem... Anything. Yes, and that doesn't seem to be... If the goal was ease of control, that doesn't seem to be effective for the person that wanted that or the group that wanted that to be the outcome. First of all, I'm really glad to get a question about this as a sea change, which is that our lives have become wall-to-wall -wall uncertainty. We can't discern. If the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor today, we would spend 10 years discussing whether it was a false flag, whether it was actually the Japanese, whether there was any attack, whether it was a soundstage, whether it was a psyop, whether it was a, you know. Right now, the main institutions of our society have abdicated their role for public-spirited adjudication of what is true based on expertise. And so what you're seeing is people coming to hate experts and coming to hate institutions because they're realizing that these institutions lie to them at a level that they've never considered unless they were Alex Jones fans to begin with. And so you're, you're, what you're having is you're having a large number of people waking up to the idea that 
Yeah, there really are <laughs> organizations and working groups that determine what you hear from a multiplicity of venues. It's the same message relentlessly. Do you think people are overly pattern matching that now? Say more by what you mean. That they're seeing conspiracy where there isn't because the lack of faith in institutions. Same person is saying that they see a conspiracy and they see no conspiracy. They have part of their head that remembers that conspiracy theorists are crazy people. And they've got part of their brain that remembers that normies who don't believe in conspiracies are crazy people. And they can't integrate those things, right? They cannot figure out how are these things being coordinated? Am I a crazy person for seeing these patterns? Am I a crazy person for ignoring for them, believing when un- them for when they're, when they're unearthed? Um, what you're seeing is a complete destruction of bedrock reality that if you weren't actually physically there, how do we know that these people actually met in a warehouse? Is this really a table or is it just, you know, (laughs) CGI? Was it green and we could superimpose wood onto it? Nobody knows what's true. And, you know, if you, if you ask me, well, Eric, how are you dealing with this? I would say I'm failing. I'm just flat out failing as are all of you. I'm just more honest about it. Some of you have an idea that you've got one lens, which is fix the money, fix the world. Bitcoin. That's the answer. Yeah. Bitcoin rock on, but no, that's not the answer. Or somebody else says, you know, I really think that we just need to be open and tolerant and realize it's a big world and we just have to give people their due. Well, that doesn't work either. You can't just let everything run riot or we have to go back to our institutions with these people at the helm. Are you kidding? We have to abandon our institution. Wait, what are you saying? We're going to abandon our institutions. Are, 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 do you know what that looks like? Nobody has an answer. Yeah. Uh, but project Bluebeam. <laughs> So this is another possibility, is that this is part of the narrative. And I've brought up Project Bluebeam many times on Sovereign Tech. Uh, the idea that there will be a holographic alien invasion is an it's not real. It's planned to create a desired outcome with the population of the planet Earth. Okay. Um, you know, that this is playing into that, kind of priming the pump, getting people ready for, oh, yeah, there's going to be disclosure. There are aliens. Here they come, you know, and we need to um, do something about them. Either they end up, you know, becoming the the, the uh, de facto leaders, you know, and but actually it's really just, you know, humans behind them because, again, they're not real aliens. Uh, or it's all some kind of trick for a UN power grab, which is kind of what uh, 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 Sergei Manast would have said in Project Bluebeam. You know, the idea that, that the the world's countries would launch their nukes, they'd send their Oppenheimers up against these aliens, and then you'd find out that the whole thing was fake. And so the UN could say, give us all your nukes. You people can't be trusted with them. You know, that that's that's part of the theory of, of that, that Project Bluebeam would, would lay out. And uh, this would fit in fairly well with that. And, I mean, it even speaks to, like wait a minute, and then we just had the movie about the nuclear weapons, you know, or the creation of nuclear weapons get released at the same time. Boy, that's odd. Um, But, yeah, while I certainly subscribe to certain elements of Project Bluebeam, that I think that that's a thing of interest for, at the very least, the U.S. government, if not other governments, 
Um, I don't know if that's the case here. I'm, I'm leaning towards the idea that this is all just marketing to try and scare, uh, uh, you know, the opposition to the United States. What other thoughts do you have on this? I mean, are you disappointed in not bringing up Bob Lazar? Like, what's... No, I guess I'm not surprised by that. I don't think they would want to give any fame to somebody like that who mm -hmm. is actually a more believable source mm -hmm. of uh, whatever sort of conspiratorial information he has. Seems to have a bigger set of nuts, too. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, and certainly took himself, I think, a little more seriously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, I... Th I don't know. I think anything could be possible at this moment, and I don't think we'll really know until it plays out. Yeah, I, I just I think Rush should have just released a book. He should have written a book and just dropped it, put it out there, just shadow dropped it, and then like deal with it, world, you know. And and that's the end of it. Don't bother with the fucking hearings. They're not. If he can't get the stuff out, and it's all going to go to a closed hearing, a more uh, confidential setting or something what does it matter you know like really just put out the book make the claims and and, and run with it I, there, there's so much cowardice here and, and you know but he's being treated especially by the quote-unquote ufo community he's being treated as some kind of great hero and that he's bringing in disclosure when i don't see anything he brought no evidence whatsoever made no new claims there's there, there's nothing here you know it's not disclosure it's fucking disrobing you know, the emperor, the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> yeah, in that sense, it does feel like a presentation of some kind. You know, right. like we're watching a, a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it feels like the, the hearing was not necessary for yeah, him no. to get out his story. I don't even understand why he's in front of Congress saying these things. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you have to do to get that position? You know, yeah, to right. get that gig? <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you get in front of Congress and say, uh, I don't like that this is happening, mm -hmm. and I'd like you to change it? Yeah. Because I think there's a lot of us out here that would like to have that opportunity Yes. to speak to Congress right. in a public setting and air our grievances. Yeah, well, just line up your calendar and see, okay, when is Hunter Biden going to be in front of you know in court or something and you know then you just ask hey on this day can i show up in congress and they'll put you in and you can say whatever crazy shit you want you don't need any evidence whatsoever <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean he's obviously not on trial no right there's right. no one convicting him right. at the moment right he just wants to say these things in a very public way and he already did that with all of his interviews yeah i guess this is just a way of him being taken more seriously yeah yeah, I think it speaks very. Yeah, I'm I'm with you, and, and I mean, I, a you know, and and there are people who have made extraordinary claims, and they didn't get in front of Congress. Um, who there is suggestive evidence that they were offed by some organization, you know, for presenting supposed evidence, or at least making claims that might have been too close to the mark about aliens ufos whatever on earth okay and there, there's a pretty good list of names like that so it's amazing to me one that this guy is alive like that that blows my mind you know if he's really got that great of information it's very hard to believe well isn't that just more proof that he doesn't yeah that's the that's how i feel is that he really doesn't have he's way off 
you know. I don't know, but then again, there's also the safety of being in the public with this information. Yeah, but I think if you've got enough, if you're going to lay... That's the thing. Like, he's really not saying anything, you know? Say something. Like, just saying, oh yeah, they have a football field-sized spacecraft. I think either way, the fact that he's alive or the fact that he's saying these things, Mm -hmm. he's playing into some sort of larger agenda. Okay, yeah, there you go. I'm I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. The powers that be want him to survive. Yeah. And they want him to be out there saying what he's saying. Yeah, right, right. It's probably the same reason Ed Mitchell never got off. I mean, yeah. uh, Yeah, I can... I'm with you there. Um, the, The sad part for me is this just... My feeling is this shows how desperate the UFO community is to be right because they've just been going on for so long and have been ridiculed for so long that they'll just latch on to to any shred of something that comes with any kind or any shred of validity, you know, uh, because they're excited about this. When again, just look at it, you know, take take a few steps back and look at it there's nothing here there's nothing there yeah i mean can you blame them though i feel like the the ufo community has really been marginalized yeah for a very long time yeah even though there's like so much documented evidence of like firsthand witness accounts of of really bizarre shit Mm -hmm. and like hearing some of these accounts you can't help but think like there has to be something going on here that's genuine Sure. And it's beyond humanity, or at least humanity as we know it. Um, but the thing, my point is that they want to be accepted by the mainstream, and I don't blame them for latching on to this story, because this is, by some accounts, a way into general acceptance as fact instead of mythology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or it's all just a money-making scheme. <laughs> or that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll bring it up quick, and then we can wrap things up. Um, you know, the Congress, U.S. Congress, like, already did a big deep-dive research into UFOs in the 70s. This isn't Project Blue Book. This is completely separate, done by an impartial third party. And the conclusion of that was, yeah, a lot of these people are making this up. You know, like, the, or these are falsified. These pictures are bullshit. They're doctored, whatever. But he said there's a... but. You know, the, their, their head researcher said, but there's some of them we can't explain. On the record, under oath, in front of, the, in front of Congress, is he said, the ones we can't explain, the only thing I can, the only thing that does explain it is that they're demonic. Like, it's the demonic. He was saying it, they're, they're spiritual beings. Like, it was so out of the realm of possibility of what was described that he couldn't even say, oh yeah, it's aliens or it's this or that. Like, it was just so out, it's so wild that all he could claim was that it was it was supernatural. Dr. Ross, you are an expert in a variety of areas. You're an astrophysicist, you're an apologist, and you're one of the best people to go to on this topic of UFOs and aliens and extraterrestrials. This is a subject that for a long time, I think, was seen as fringe or was sort of not discussed maybe in the mainstream. And suddenly here we are. It's a topic we're seeing in Congress. We're seeing testimony in Congress. We're seeing um, all sorts of government documentation on this. And stories that previously, again, were sort of concealed coming out into the open. 
What do you make of sort of this newfound cultural, you know, resurgence and interest in this topic? Well, I became a UFO expert, but not on purpose. I was an amateur astronomer before I became a professional astronomer. So every university where I served, they said, you have to handle all the UFO reports. So, and about 99% of what people would report to me as UFOs, I could explain as natural phenomena, a hoax, uh, or secret government military activity. Uh, but there's a 1% residual that falls in a different category. And uh, these would be UFO phenomena uh, that observers report violating the laws of physics. On the other hand, they leave evidence indicating that they're real phenomena. And that, I think, explains why you have a lot of scientists and skeptics saying uh, this doesn't exist, because they, they come from a worldview that doesn't permit the existence of non-physical reality. Uh, but as a Christian, as a believer in the inerrancy of the Bible, I do believe in the uh, existence of non-physical reality. Because uh, the Bible tells us God created uh, two different species of intelligent life, one that's constrained by the physics of the universe and one that is not. And we're talking about humans that are indeed constrained by the dimensions and laws of physics of the universe and angels who are not. And these angels live in a different dimensional realm, but God has given them the power to come in temporarily into our realm. So I think that's where that 1% residual falls. And uh, you know, some of the strongest evidence for that is that where you've got multiple observers tracking a UFO going through the atmosphere, which means we can actually calculate its trajectory and velocity. And the velocities often uh, run between 5 and 25,000 miles per hour. But the observers never record the occurrence of a sonic boom or a heat friction trail uh, behind the UFO. If it was a physical object, you would get a sonic boom. You would get a heat friction trail, just like you do uh, when one of the spaceships go through our atmosphere uh, from the uh, International Space Station. However, there are a couple of thousand cases documented where the UFO not only goes through our atmosphere, it crashes into the Earth. And when you go to the crash site, you see a crater. If there's snow, the snow is melted. The vegetation is consistently damaged. But as you investigate that crater site, there's never any debris. There's no artifacts. If it was a physical craft crashing into the Earth, you'd be able to recover some debris and artifacts. But the fact that you see a crater and melted snow and damaged vegetation means that something real caused that. So we're dealing with non-physical reality or what the French astrophysicist Jacques Vallée referred to. He says, we're dealing with interdimensional phenomena. I mean, he's not a believer, but that was his conclusion. We're dealing with a phenomena that's operating in dimensions different uh, than those of the universe. You know, what you just described is so fascinating to me. As a, as a Christian, let me start there. You know, as a Christian, I think of Ephesians 6. I think of the verses that we often don't talk about, you know, even in, in the church, about this spiritual battle that is going on, that there's this unseen realm where this battle is unfolding, right? And I think about what you were just describing. I also have pondered as a journalist, you know, I've often thought, okay, well, you have a situation where people are claiming that there are beings and there are spaceships and they're... And, 
know, they're talking about them as though they're physical and they will describe it in a way where these beings are so intelligent they've been you know unable to be detected they somehow crash though you know they're so intelligent they crash and then they mysteriously disappear right away and it just doesn't seem to add up you know if if you're so intelligent and so good at escaping how did your aircraft crash consistently right and so what you're describing as is these spiritual elements i think it's really really an interesting idea to think of it that way, and I think the question people would then naturally have for you, and I'd love to get your take on this, right? You know, what exactly would you would you definitively say? And it seemed like you were saying this that these are this is essentially the angelic and demonic realm, really the demonic realm that maybe we're dealing with here in a spiritual sense, not a literal alien flying around in in space in the physical. Well, back in the 1960s, the U.S. government commissioned the physicist Alan Hynek to investigate the UFO phenomena. And he was the one that came up with this term, close encounters of the first kind, second kind, and third kind. And what you notice in these, a close encounter of the first kind is where the human contactee is within 500 feet of the UFO phenomena. And now when you're talking about the second kind, uh, this is where they actually begin to experience some kind of physical harm. There have even been instances where people have been killed or their animals have been killed. And then there's instances where people claim to have direct communication with UFO beings. Uh, but what's interesting about these close encounters, it's never beneficial. It's always deleterious. The best you're going to come away from with one of these encounters is recurring terrifying nightmares. Worst case scenario, you get killed. Uh, so they're harmful, uh, but there's also evidence that there's deception involved in these encounters. Because when people claim to have had conversation with these UFO beings, uh, they will claim, well, in fact, if you go back 100 years ago, uh, they were saying they were from the backside of the moon. But when the public became educated enough to realize that's not credible, they changed their story and said, well, we're from Venus. And people realized how hot it is on the surface of Venus. They said they were from Mars. Well, now they're claiming to be from another planetary system. So the fact that they keep changing their story. Uh, and then you've got those cases where the human contactee goes into a trance, and then they begin to type out what the UFO being wants them to uh, communicate. And it sounds like automatic writing, by the way. That sounds very similar yeah, to what it is. Automatic writing, and it's extensive. I mean, probably the most dramatic example would be a big book, uh, the Arantia book. It's kind of the Bible for all these UFO cults. And some editions run 4,000 pages. The entire book was communicated through automatic writing. But what's interesting about the Arantia book, about a third of its content denies the deity of Jesus Christ. So there I think you can see the deceptive motivation behind this UFO phenomena. And you know, in this book, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, we point out that we have a scientific testable model for this UFO phenomena. Because what you notice in these close encounters, it's exclusively experienced by people who have significant involvement in the occult. And when you remove that occult factor, that's the end of the UFO encounters. Increase the degree of occult, you increase the frequency 
of these UFO encounters. And as we document in this book, you notice there's a much higher incidence of these close encounters in nations where there's a high incidence of occult involvement. Examples would be France, uh, Equatorial Brazil, and I got to see this firsthand when I went to the Soviet Union uh, when the communists were in control. And what I noted back then is that the Soviet Union was sponsoring occult physics research at their major universities. And so a lot of the physicists I was engaging at that time uh, were deeply involved in the occult. Many of them were demon-possessed, and many of them were having these close encounters with UFOs. Now, when you go back to Russia, the incidence of that has dramatically dropped because the incidence of occult involvement has dramatically dropped. So I end this book by saying, close all the doors to occult involvement in your life and the life of your close relatives. That'll be the end of your UFO encounters. This is a testable model. You know, I, I have to tell you, as you're describing all of this, you know, my, my background, one of the things I've worked on is a book on, on evil and looking at demons and possession and what scripture says about it and interviewing people who have come out of the occult and a lot of the descriptions that people will have. And of course, not everybody is going to believe all of these instances. And similarly to what you were talking about, many of them, there are natural explanations, but for those that are documented and they clearly went through something these individuals will say that the demons they interacted with were telling them very similar lies, right? That they were that they were deceased loved ones. I mean, that's a big thing with mediums and, and psychics, obviously, uh, for those watching that, you know, they will tell you they're communicating with the dead, right? The souls of the dead. When real, in reality, the, the demonic entities are lying about that. And so it's interesting um, when you were sort of going through the lies that, you know, might be being perpetuated by these beings and these encounters that people believe are aliens, Um that is, that is very, very interesting to me. And the other thing I wanted to ask you, just as you were talking about these countries where there's more occult activity, you know, I'd love to get your take on this and maybe, maybe I'm off base here, but it is interesting to watch. I know there's nothing new in these claims. You're not seeing any new details, even though there are more of these claims of alien encounters. But as America seems to be sort of pulling back from its Christian rooting, right? Pulling back, we're seeing secularism sort of rampantly grow. Do you think there's any connection between that move away from God, even nominally that we're seeing, and this increase in alleged interactions with these you know, purported beings? Well, I think the evidence for that is that uh, in states where there's a higher involvement in the occult, you see a higher incidence of these uh, close encounters with UFOs. Uh, good examples of that would be Alaska and Hawaii. And in those states in the Union where there's a very low incidence of occult involvement, likewise, you see a much lower incidence of people claiming to have these close encounters. But my passion is for the individual that's having these encounters. Close the doors, and that will deliver you from these horrifying uh, experiences. Um, and you know, also be careful about who you uh, are in contact with. You know, like uh, if your father's involved, uh, that could be the demon can work through that. And keep in mind, these fallen angels can take whatever form they choose. They can appear as your dead grandfather. They can appear as a flying saucer. They can appear as a leprechaun. And so that's why it tells us in First John, test the spirits. 
Don't believe every supernatural being that approaches you. Put them to the test. Wow, that is incredibly uh, powerful. And this has all been really thought-provoking. Of course, I have to ask you about David Grush and the you know testimony. He's obviously an intelligence officer, served for 14 years um, in a variety of capacities. His testimony, um, congressional testimony, garnered a lot of attention. What was that like for you to watch, and what were some of your takeaways on that? Well, he's been speaking about this for many years. And what I noticed in his testimony before Congress is that he softened his claims a lot. He used to be claiming that our government actually had bodies of UFO beings. He basically says, no, what we have is biologic tissue. And so, and he was also uh, hedging his claims about what uh, they had in the way of their hangars. But he stood by his claim that our government actually has significant physical pieces of alien spacecraft dating back to 1933. And uh, so I wound up doing a, a podcast on why his claims should not be believed. They're not credible. I mean, I can give you three quick reasons. Number one, U.S. government security is not up to the task. Six decades of cover-up of something that fits in multiple hangars uh, where you got 20, 30, 50-foot uh, pieces of artifacts. I mean, you're young, but I can remember when Richard Nixon, as a U.S. president, tried to cover up a single audio cassette tape. And he was only successful in doing that with all the power of the executive branch behind him. He could only cover up a cassette tape for 11 days. So are we to believe that the government actually has these hangers filled with physical craft, uh, with biological tissue inside of them that nobody's been able to come out? And I say, number two, where are the artifacts? I mean, I've been to different museums where I've been able to see up close multiple rocks recover from the Apollo astronauts, real artifacts that I can see that are on display in a museum where people pick them up and handle them with special gloves, of course. Uh, but there's nothing like that with the UFO phenomena, nothing that uh, you can tangibly see and touch that's in a museum that's never come out. And the third reason uh, is, I think, the most compelling. It's simply not possible for a physical craft to travel through interstellar space, least not a craft of significant small size. I mean, for example, astronomers are interested in sending spaceships to the nearest planet outside of our solar system. It's only 4.2 light years away. But they realize as these spaceships travel through space, they'll encounter electrons, protons, helium nuclei, tiny, beats, tiny pieces of dust. And this will destroy the craft. And the greater the size of the craft, the greater the destruction. So they've come up with a plan to say, we're going to send tiny spaceships and we're going to send a whole bunch of them. So the proposal is to send a thousand spaceships, no bigger than 10 centimeters across, to the nearest planet outside our solar system, with the understanding that at least half of them will be totally destroyed. The other half will only be partly destroyed, but destroyed in different ways. And so the hope is we'll get some information back. But there's no way you're going to send a termite across interstellar space, or even a microbe, let alone something the size of a human being. In fact, I've written articles making the point, if you want to send 
an animal, a physical animal, roughly the size of a human being, across interstellar space, number one, you're looking at thousands of years to make the trip. That's a long time, way beyond the lifetime of a human being. And you're going to need a spaceship at least the size of the Death Star, because you need the spaceship to be big enough that you can protect the inhabitants uh, from deadly interstellar radiation. And uh, you also need to be able to provide them with artificial gravity and enough uh, sustenance that they can survive trips that are going to last thousands of years. And so at a minimum, uh, you're going to need a spaceship that's a thousand kilometers across. And if you really want to be safe about doing it, you're going to need something about the size of our moon. And so the idea that these things in hangars in different places, no, it's way too small uh, to bring beings across interstellar space. So Congress has, like, an answer to this. Their you know, they have official research that they funded, commissioned, and it has a claim of what these events are, and that's the claim, is that it's something, is that it's the supernatural. Um, now, there's a lot of Christians who want to, you know, latch on to that and, and run with that. I'm not saying I agree with that. Uh, I'm just saying that for Congress to suddenly take another interest in this, they've already put in the tons of research. You know, I don't know why it's coming up again. Anyway, we'll wrap this one up and uh, really appreciate you being on, Ellen. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> well, of course, you can always email q22 at nwo.red uh, if you want to get in your questions or thoughts on this, and we maybe we can respond to them in the future. And we will see all of you woo, on the other side. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Harsh but fair, sold here. But fair? Yeah, like paraphernalia, you know. Oh. But fair, like uh. it's all variations on butt plugs. And underwear. And underwear with butt plugs and butt plugs with no underwear. Wait, and would you wear the ones with butt plugs? Would I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just sell this stuff. I don't <laughs> use it. <laughs>
we were using microscopes and we collected magnetic material from the ocean floor that is two kilometers deep and uh, first we put it in vials as you see here i just received uh, some of the material by fedex uh, a few hours ago uh, and then um, we filtered out the tiny particles that are volcanic ash and we were left with particles that are half a millimeter in size. We look at them through the microscope and we saw that they are spherical. These are called spherules, which are the melted droplets from the surface of the object, which uh, moved too fast to be bound to the sun. It came from interstellar space. It's the first time that humans put their hands on material from a large object that entered the solar system from outside. So I got two two sets of questions. Let's stick first with the little marble um, uh, objects. How do we know those mean anything more than just some combination of things that melted while it was zooming through space? Why is it possibly well, technology? These, based on uh, the U.S. government data, we infer that the, the material strength of this uh, meteorite was higher than all space rocks cataloged by NASA over the past decade, even iron meteorites. And uh, the question is, what was it made of? And perhaps it formed in some natural environment that is different from a planetary system like the solar system, but perhaps also it is technological in origin. A spacecraft like Voyager, imagine Voyager a billion years from now going to interstellar space and colliding with a planet and burning up in the atmosphere of the planet as a meteor. That's a possibility. This object was moving faster than 95% of all stars in the vicinity of the sun. And so we decided to go out and check uh, any leftovers from that uh, meteor explosion, and we found it. So now we're planning to analyze it at Harvard University and figure out what it was made of. And now the other question, which is, we don't exactly get things arriving from other solar systems that often, right? Help us understand how big a deal it is, um, and is that why it's called Interstellar Meteor 1? Because there isn't one before it. Right. Uh, this is the first one identified by U.S. government sensors, uh, mostly satellites, and uh, uh, we didn't discover any such object before. It's, it was more than half a meter in size and released a few percent of the energy output of the Hiroshima atomic bomb when it exploded 20 kilometers above the Pacific Ocean. And we were able to localize the path of the meteor. We found these spirals, droplets, that were melted off its surface where we expected they were concentrated in that region. And the hope is that we can infer whether it was artificial in origin, because just imagine semiconductors being melted. Uh, they would, the droplets will include a much higher abundance of rare elements that are not found in, in such concentrations in nature. Professor Avi Loeb, fascinating. Good luck with your research from Harvard University. Thank you, Professor. Thanks for having me.